from the crypt. All right, what is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent. We're in here at an off night, usually here Fridays or Saturday mornings. Friday nights or Saturday mornings, excuse me. We're in here on a Monday night in Flatiron, Manhattan, uh, for a very special guest. I'm very excited for the conversation we're about to dive into. Uh, I've been following this man on Twitter for years now. Very, uh, very fanboyish with the the sort of brand you've built around yourself as an investment sort of, uh, I would say, authority, not authority, but I don't want to say authority, but your your thoughts around uh, the investment thesis of Bitcoin and the expanding crypto landscape uh, have been very insightful in my opinion. Um, I'd like to welcome all you freaks, or excuse me, I'd like to introduce all you freaks to Ari Paul. Ari, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Marty. Thanks for coming on. I know it's uh, a man whose attention is... Uh, is in high demand right now. And I'm very fortunate to have you in the studio. And I appreciate you coming coming by. For those of you that don't know, Ari is the chief investment officer at Block Tower Capital. Uh one of the uh one of the emerging crypto hedge funds uh in this new nation uh emerging asset class. Um Yeah, Ari, so thanks for again, thanks for coming in the studio tonight. Uh, I guess we're going to start out uh how did you find Bitcoin? Is it Tales from the Crypt? We we start out with the tale. What's your tale? Uh, so in, in 2009, I was a trader at, at Susquehanna International Group, and the Fed was printing tons of money. The ECB was printing tons of money. We were in the throes of the financial crisis, and I didn't expect inflation anytime soon, but I was already thinking that um, eventually I'm going to want to get out of fiat. Eventually, I'm going to want to get into assets that can't be depreciated by central banks. Mm-hmm. So that had me looking for something like Bitcoin that couldn't be depreciated by a central bank. Um, the, the next avenue was, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a cypherpunk or a libertarian, uh, but I, I had relatives who had to flee Nazi Germany, some successfully, some not. And um, I have a, I, I think anyone who has relatives who had to flee, whether it's Nazi Germany or Maoist China or Syria or the Khmer Rouge, there's some kind of deep-rooted fear almost that uh, while I'm very fortunate to live in the United States, a very free country, I don't take it for granted. And even in the U.S., um, it's a concern. But certainly for much of the world who, who doesn't have that luxury, having something like Bitcoin where you can store your wealth in a way that cannot be ar- arbitrarily seized by a corrupt judge, a corrupt politician, I want that to exist. Mm-hmm. I, want, I, don't, I, I frankly don't care if it's Bitcoin that provides that service, and I think of it as a service. Um, but I want people to have Swiss banks in their pocket that, that is um, more powerful than any judge or any government. And then the last was... Um, seeing kind of Bitcoin start emerging as an investor and as a trader, it's an incredibly inefficient market and it's an asset class that no one knows anything about. So it's incredibly intellectually rewarding to be able to try to puzzle through what, what what's this worth? How do we think about this? Yeah, in my mind, that's the whole sort of, that's, that's what's drawn me in is the fact that we're all learning together. And that's the beauty of this space right now. You have old cypherpunks who've been working on this technology for decades and then you have kids like me who comparatively stupid but are are discovering this technology as well and uh similar similar films bitcoin in a similar way like in around 2000 i didn't find it till 2012 but around 2008 2009 i was in high school in fall of 2008 and luckily was taking an economics class and had an adept teacher who sort of said hey this shit is uh this is not the way it's supposed to work in the long run. Um, so I went into a college with a very know your enemy mindset and studied economics and fell into Bitcoin that way. And I think uh, 
it's very interesting how how different people find Bitcoin in different ways. So you come from a traditional uh, financial fund background, um, and you you are actually the head portfolio manager of the University of Chicago. No, just uh, one, one portfolio manager. One portfolio of, manager uh, of several of mm-hmm. a small team. And that's one thing I found most interesting coming from a finance background was seeing you on Twitter and you were working for the endowment fund and pumping Bitcoin and cryptocurrency uh, as uh, an emerging asset class and encouraging traditional financial institutions to invest in this class to an extent. Obviously, with uh, definitely manage your risk when, when entering these markets, but that's what sort of drew me to you was you at the University of Chicago, sort of the the bastion of, would you say the bastion of Austrian, econo- Austrian economics? In? You know, it's interesting. You Chicago has has both Eugene Fama and Richard Thaler. So Eugene Fama is, is kind of the father of, of efficient markets. And mm-hmm. then Richard Thaler is the exact opposite, kind of the father of behavioral finance. And they're friends and their offices are like right next to each other. So Chicago kind of gets, you know, is, is a, a really amazing place to study or practice economics mm-hmm. and covers the spectrum. But um, at, the, at, the, at the endowment, we explicitly did not believe in the efficient market. Uh, I mean, we really shouldn't have jobs if we did. Yeah. And what was that? Um, what was that like first bringing up Bitcoin in sort of a, an investment thesis meeting? Uh, it was mostly frustration in, in the sense that I wasn't naive. I knew the bureaucratic process. I knew all of the challenges with getting something as, as new as that into a portfolio. I thought it would be a year-long process, frankly. What was frustrating was just how quickly. So, so prior to 2016, it was almost uninvestable. You know, Bitcoin, I mean, at the start of 2017, all cryptocurrency combined was $18 billion. <laughs> UChicago's endowment was $8 billion. So this, you know, it wasn't really an asset class three years ago. It, it was mm-hmm. tiny. I mean, I, I, I don't want to throw out a, a random number, but I, I think, you know, in 2015, maybe it was f- $4 billion in total value, right? So it was only really in 2016 that I started thinking about this as something you Chicago could and should invest in. And I tried to start laying the groundwork. I, I held some um, kind of voluntary meetings with, with my colleagues and trying to educate, just provide background information without pushing on anything. Um, and then, you know... It, End of 2016, first half of 2017, everything took off like a rocket, and it was very frustrating watching that and seeing, um, you know, I and a few of my colleagues who I convinced to invest, we were all making tremendous money for ourselves, and that didn't feel great, right? Because I, I wanted to be a good fiduciary, I wanted to serve you, Chicago, and I had done everything I could to have the university benefit from this 10x increase in wealth, right? I mean, in six months, an investment in in almost any, I mean, in, in any large cryptocurrency, forget it, maybe you didn't get Ether, but even in Bitcoin. You know, you outperformed uh, the rest of your portfolio over the course of a decade, <laughs> and and to watch us miss that, and to watch not just us, but to watch every endowment miss that um, when it's kind of right in front of you is very frustrating. Mm-hmm. You can't really blame the endowments, though, right? How like was there was there like an "I told you so" moment where you look back retrospectively and were like, if you had listened to me six months ago, we could we could have funded this endowment for for the next decade or. I mean, I, I, I try not to be a jerk. Um, <laughs> you know, certainly in my head. Uh, I mean, there was a point where I joked in a meeting um, at the very start of 2017 where we were, we were having a discussion about how are we going to hit our 7% return bogey? How are we going to hit kind of our target return if we think every asset class is overpriced? Mm-hmm. And so kind of a reasonable target return assumption given our portfolio was you know, maybe 5% or 6%. Um, 
and and the, and the way those are constructed, or I mean, you come from a finance background. It's kind of this long-term idea of current valuation. It's not saying what will next year give us. It's more like over a ten to twenty-year time frame if things play out the way they normally do. And so we're like, okay, our current portfolio, we think maybe it'll give us six percent, six and a half, and really we kind of need for the university seven, seven and a half percent. How are we going to get there? I joked, put half a percent of the of the endowment in in Ethereum in Ether. And that was when it was at $10. And so, you know, I didn't expect it to, Ethereum to do what it did, but over the next six months, it went up 20x. And so, literally, that half of a percent of an investment would have outperformed the other 99.5% of the portfolio in aggregate, oh, right? Yeah. It would, that half a percent would have returned more dollars to the endowment than everything else we invested in combined. Um, and and the, 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 look, the reality is uh, there's some high insight bias there. I didn't know it was going to be a 20x. It wasn't a risk-free investment by, by any means. Um, mm-hmm. But on the other hand, um, I, I do think that fiduciaries, endowment investors, do have a responsibility to think critically, to be intellectually curious, and to overcome their own aversion. Right. So, where does alpha come from as an investor? It can come from, um, or actually, let me take a step back. Where does return come from? So, like traditional academics will tell you, it comes from taking risk, right? From taking equity exposure, from taking credit exposure, um, maybe illiquidity. If you're willing to lock your money up, you should get a return for that. And where does alpha come from above that? And um, it's not kind of obvious, like like Eugene Fama would say, there's no alpha at all. Uh, you know, some mm-hmm. academics would say there just shouldn't be alpha at all. It should all get competed away. Obviously, in Chicago, we didn't believe that. And so we would ask ourselves the question, where should we look for alpha? And the answer would often be, well, maybe we should look in emerging markets. Um, or maybe we should look in frontier markets. We, we probably want to look in places where no one else is looking, places where capital is under-allocated, where there's less competition. And so that line of thinking that is really part of our job should have led us to cryptocurrency, I think, because cryptocurrency was really clear what the barriers to entry are. It's really clear why smart people are not in the space. Things like custody risk. Um, you have all these idiosyncratic risks, these mm-hmm. risks that are very serious but and, and that irrationally prevent people from investing. I say irrationally in the sense that um, let's say you invest in a crypto fund. That fund currently self-custodies their assets, almost certainly, and that means they can steal your money. That's a very real risk, but it's a risk that you should be eager to try to underwrite or consider underwriting because it's uncorrelated to the rest of your portfolio. So let's compare that to your traditional fund, which uses clearinghouses and brokers to sort of take on that custody risk for you to a certain extent, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in a traditional fund, if they invest in equity, that equity is is stored with a custodian. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and same with cash. And basically, you're not... You, a fund's not going to be able to steal equity from you or or U.S. dollars from you. Um, even, I mean, just taking a step back, U.S. dollars are, are easily traceable, large amounts, right? If, if you wire money out of a bank, you're probably not getting away with it. Mm-hmm. You can wire it to the Cayman Islands. That wire's traceable, and it's even reversible. Um, cryptocurrency, people can get away with stealing it. So it's a very attractive target for thieves. People have gotten away with stealing it. Certainly. That's um, that's one of the beauties of... Uh, oh, beauties, yeah. It's one of the parts of the double-edged sword that is this emerging asset class. It's asymmetric, positive returns, and then uh, very, very high probability comparatively to being looted by uh, by nefarious actors. Certainly, there's a whole lot of ways to have to have a, a negative hundred percent return in cryptocurrency. <laughs> a yeah. ton of ways. Hey, I'll, I'm gonna raise my hand here. I'm raising my hands in the studio. I I was uh, I was on MintPal when MintPal got hacked, and I got a lot of a lot of my crypto stolen back in 2014 or 15 14 it was uh may 2014 i think but 
that's one thing again like i said we're all learning together that's one lesson i learned early like holy shit like don't keep your don't keep your coins on an exchange make sure you know how to download a wallet how to secure private keys and that's another thing about the space that blows my mind is just how much it forces you to learn about so many different disciplines about so many different aspects of of life in general when it comes to bitcoin it's a create it's a beautifully uh designed incentive incentive system excuse me that includes economics mathematics game theory i mean game theory falls under economics and then um computer science and cryptography and I think you and I coming from a finance slash economics background have a different perspective than the developers working on these protocols that come from a very, very uh, uh, technical background. Um, so they're more worried about the code. We're more worried about the economics. And it's interesting to see where these two collide out in the open in the debate space, which I would argue is Twitter right now, um, probably the best open forum for the, these debates. Um, so what would you say about that, about the multiple disciplines that are sort of rolled into this asset class? That's definitely one of the reasons why there's so little, um, not, not just expertise, but even understanding. Because to understand Bitcoin really is the intersection of all those things. You need to have at least a, a little bit of understanding of, there's um, a good line uh, that I, I'm not sure who said it first, but I, I heard it from Naval Ravikant, um, who said, uh, cryptocurrency is like a graduate 400 level course with prerequisites and all these different things. And um, it, it's very true. And and I think the way I think about learning about cryptocurrency is it's kind of a spiral. So you first read about what a blockchain is and it doesn't mean much to you, right? And then you read a little bit about the consensus mechanism, proof of work mining, and that doesn't mean that much. And you learn a little bit about, um, you know, uh, maybe the, the transfers themselves or, or how Bitcoin is valued in the market or the market infrastructure, and that doesn't mean much. And you kind of go around in the circle and each time you go around, you start connecting the pieces. And what's amazing is if you ask someone what Bitcoin is or what makes it meaningful, there isn't any consensus even among the Bitcoin core developers, Bitcoin maximalists, Bitcoin investors. Everyone will give you a different answer. Um, and some of them are, are meaningfully different. So um, is it a timestamping protocol? <laughs> is it a protocol where at its heart the purpose of the blockchain is uh, for the world to come to consensus? It's a little bit like mechanical time. Is it, a, is it a way for the world to come to consensus over a certain number of blocks have passed? And maybe that's all it is, and that's incredibly valuable because it's the first time in history we've had that. Um, or maybe it's a proof of publication. So it's a way of proving that some group has, 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 has literally just agreed on some point of information at some point in time. Or is it a you know game theory solution to the Byzantine generals problem, and is that really how we should think about it? Or is it uh, you know money that can't be depreciated, depreciated? Or is it a way to transfer information that's censorship resistant? And um, some of those are compatible, but uh, I, I don't think there's a right answer to that. And it's not that they're all correct. I think like in, in debates I've had with people, they'll say no, it's not a time stamping protocol. It doesn't. It actually isn't that good at that. Peter Todd was. Uh... Was was clamoring about that on Twitter the other week. I forget who brought it up, but uh, somebody defined Bitcoin as a time stamping protocol, and Peter Todd had some had some words to say about that. That's hilarious. So I I, I was chatting with Peter Todd in person uh, two weeks ago, and and that was exactly what I was thinking of. It was Peter Todd who's like, no, it's not a time stamping protocol. <laughs> uh, Peter Todd is brilliant, by the way. One of the there's there's probably 200 protocol developers on the planet who actually can do meaningful protocol development, and Peter Todd is. Um, you know, certainly one of those and, and probably top decile among that group. Yeah, I remember um, being at a BitDevs meetup here in the city at Union Square Ventures where you just came from, actually. Um, and 
it was right after Peter had double spent on Coinbase, and there was like a huge debate going on about that. It was right after the uh, the first Hong Kong agreement um, when they when they agreed, quote unquote, to double the block size or whatever. But that was a very interesting content or excuse me conversation and raise my hand here again i made myself look like a complete idiot that night so union square ventures you're looking out over union square obviously and you have that clock in the in the corner of union square you can see it's it's basically just a running clock with probably 20 digits it's just the down to whatever the 16th decimal to the right of uh of of the time is and i looked at it it was 7 30 at night so it was 19 30 blah 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 and at the same time, uh, the U.S. accrued debt, national debt, was around $19 trillion. So I thought, I'd just moved to New York like a couple weeks earlier. I had no idea where I was, had no context of what this clock was. I thought it was a debt clock. So I'm sitting there nervous at my first like Bitcoin meetup in New York. Peter Todd's there, somebody who I've followed on Twitter, been like, oh my God, this dude's smart as shit. I hope I say something smart in front of him. And I look out at the clock, I point at it, and I say, hey, how prescient is this? We're here talking about Bitcoin. We have a national debt clock right across right across Union Square from us. And he looks at me dead in the eyes and say, says, that's a time clock. And I just turned away and was like, all right, that's the last thing I'm going to say tonight. And I walked to the corner and watched and listened to him describe how he double spent on Coinbase. So... There's a lot of humbling experiences in crypto. That was that was probably my first public humbling experience was being so dumb that I could not tell that the Union Square clock was a time clock and not a debt clock. Oh man, I usually like to talk up how dumb I am and how uh, often I say stupid things to like core developers, but um, it's hard to beat that. It's really hard <laughs> to beat that. And I was happy to take that take that lesson early on when I was like 23. I was like, all right, all right, you learn to talk less and, and listen more. It was a good lesson to learn early. Um, I guess let's jump into topical stuff. I mean, it was a huge day in crypto in my mind. It doesn't seem like it today, but I think we'll look back at what happened today and be like, all right, this is the first step towards huge consolidation within the space. We had Circle, Circle Pay, a Goldman Sachs company by uh, Poloniex, an altcoin Exchange most known for the troll box and their poor uh, their poor support system. Um, so this was a huge development for those of you who don't know. Poloniex is a long time altcoin exchange. You can go send your Bitcoin or Ether. I don't. They don't. Have, they haven't had Ether pairs, have they? I don't think so. Uh, it's been a long time since I've been on there. I don't yeah, know. I haven't been on there in a while either. I'm sure Brian Kelly walked you through how to buy Ripple on it a couple months if you were watching oh, CNBC. On, you know, I, Brian's a friend of mine and, and, a, and a, a great guy um, and a smart investor, by the way. Um, I, I knew of his segment, but I haven't actually watched it. So I, I missed out on, on actually buying Ripple at the top, unfortunately. That segment was a humble brag because he, uh, he, he showed his, I don't know if it was CNBC's account or his personal account, but whosever account it was, it was a humble brag because on live TV, they showed that they had like 15 Bitcoin in the account mm-hmm. and they were trading for Ripple, walked you through. But that's whatever. What happened today, uh, Circle Pay, uh, which is very interesting because uh, about a year, two years ago, was it 2016? Beginning of 2016, CEO of Circle Pay basically wrote off Bitcoin, said we will not be using Bitcoin in five to 10 years. And then two years later, he buys uh, one of the biggest alt exchanges in the world, and Poloniex. Uh, it doesn't mean he's bullish on Bitcoin at all. If anything, I could you could argue that it's he's doubling down on his uh, his his bet that Bitcoin won't be around now in three to seven years. Um, but beyond that, beyond 
Jeremy's personal thoughts, like the the aspect of uh, consolidation in the space right now is very interesting. Um, so we have traditional finance, again, circles backed by Goldman going after sort of these nation uh, exchanges. Where's Poloniex is based out of... Huh? They're U.S. based. They're U.S. based. Unless they moved, they were. They. I'm pretty sure they're still U.S. based. Are they? Yeah. I didn't know that. I thought Bittrex was the only U.S. based one. I know uh, Bittrex is Seattle. Poloniex, I, I could be wrong. I don't know if Polo did something fancy with their corporate registration. Certainly, the people are U.S. based. Yeah. But regardless if it's U.S. based or not, it's raised some very interesting questions. Um, it uh, not only questions, but just the fact that that companies are starting to buy each other within the space is a huge sort of uh, tell that the space is becoming more legitimate. What, um, in, in some, some people's eyes, what, what do you have to say about uh, Circle buying Poloniex, if anything? Uh, I think that there's a few takeaways from it. One is you had a lot of, a lot of young companies like Polo um, that almost accidentally became giant. So no one expected... Um, the massive influx of users that totally overwhelmed their systems that also Binance faced and Bittrex and all these exchanges became, some of them became bigger than Schwab, bigger than E-Trade in six months. I mean, Binance went from- Finances. I mean, they went from zero to bigger than E-Trade in, in six months, which is insane. And they didn't expect that. So um, so one one result you had was, was often bad order matching engines and bad customer support because they were just overwhelmed with new users and interest. Um, you just couldn't keep up with that level of growth. But part of it is, um, I think a lot of these young companies realize they don't know how to run a billion-dollar exchange, <laughs> right? So you think about like Mt. Gox was initially from Magic the Gathering cards, <laughs> and it kind of accidentally became the world's leading Bitcoin exchange, and and then kind of disaster followed partly because you know they, they weren't set up to. You have, you have a PHP backend securing money. It's not. Yeah. It's not really the wisest choice. Um, so I I think we're in we're we're in this interesting point in crypto where. The people who are running companies are mostly amateurs. And I don't mean that as an insult. I mean that as the people running exchanges are not seasoned exchange operators because seasoned exchange operators weren't launching crypto exchanges a year ago. So they, they're, they're amateurs who very quickly built these massive properties. They don't really know what to do with them. They're smart enough, some of them, to know they don't know what to do with them. And so Polo sold itself at a huge discount, a huge discount based on kind of cash flows. Was it 400 mil? That's that's the number I saw in the headline. Yeah. Um, and they were, at least the, the numbers, I, I don't know if, how accurate these are, but the numbers that are being reported was like a billion in revenue. Um, so a very, very cheap cheap sale. I, I don't want to throw out numbers to your listeners that may be wrong, yeah. but um, That's a, the, the reporting was that it was it was a massive sale, a, a massive discount to what you would expect an exchange to be priced at based on kind of cash flows and, run, and revenue. And it's because the, the team leading Polo didn't want to scale it. They didn't want to be running it anymore. They just wanted to cash out. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing it reflects is professionalization, right? So you're having more seasoned players, professional players come in and take control of these properties, whether the property is an exchange or a hardware wallet or um, a, a kind of any any type of asset in the space. It could even be it could even be websites. So like you have something like Bitcoin.com or Bitcoin.org that are actually massively valuable now, which the person who bought it was necessarily thinking about running a fifty million dollar web property. Yeah, how much do you think uh, Bloomberg paid for paid for the at crypto handle? That they, uh, I don't know. They're they're running uh, at Bloomberg. And that's another sign of the industry evolving, if you will. It's like now all these news agencies have crypto specific sort of verticals within their media companies, and yeah, Bloomberg's got the at crypto 
handle. I'm sure they played a pretty, pre- excuse me, I'm sure they paid a pretty penny for that. Um, but yeah, again, it's interesting to see how sort of legitimate uh, actors are starting to move more and more into this space with with authority. And we have Robin Hood with how many people? Three million people online now? Or they're about to give access Sounds to right. four million. Yeah. Um, four million other users to buying and selling Bitcoin and Ether specifically, right? Or is it? I think that's right for now. Yeah, for now. Um, one question. I don't know if you can help me answer this. It's really been sort of a gray area, specifically with Robinhood. Like, are you going to be able to take the Bitcoin and Ether off of Robinhood and put it into a personal wallet, or are you just buying claims on Bitcoin and Ether that they own? I've heard for now it's the latter that you're not you're not going to be able to withdraw. Mm-hmm. Um, so of course a lot of the kind of cypherpunks really object to that that you don't you don't own Bitcoin you own a Bitcoin IOU. Yeah, um, which is pretty legitimate it, as a complaint. I mean, right? You're own you're buying Bitcoin and you can't actually transfer it or use it. So um, that can lead to fractional reserve and fraud and um, I push back against that, I think, is legitimate. But one other thought on Circle. Um, one one comment I heard uh, reported, and, and I, I, I think it'd be hard to, to really verify this, but Polo was in regulatory crosshairs. So they list a lot of assets that mm-hmm. may be deemed unregistered securities. And if you are an exchange that facilitates trading of unregistered securities, you're, you're probably committing illegal acts that the SEC is, is likely to go after you for at some point. Another issue is things like money laundering. So Polo wasn't known for having the best KYC, AML type verification of new accounts. Um, I've heard from individuals who were grandfathered in that they just never had to provide ID and they were able to move tens of millions of dollars through that. Um, So Polo was in regulatory crosshairs, as are many other exchanges. I'm not trying to single them out. And uh, something that I've heard is that uh, Circle, before acquiring Polo, talked to regulators. And regulators basically said, if you acquire Polo and you clean them up, we won't go after you. So one of the things you're seeing is almost a laundering of these kind of questionable businesses that were almost, I mean, meeting, you know, the, the regulation around anti-money laundering laws is, is probably literally impossible. So every big U.S. bank gets fined for, for facilitating money laundering almost every year. J.P. Morgan just in the past year paid two, um, two big fines for, for facilitating money laundering from like terrorists and drug dealers. Mm-hmm. So. It's it's almost impossible to comply with, and um, in the crypto world, of course, you know these are amateurs without the massive teams of lawyers that J.P. Morgan has. So there's an interesting motivation here. Someone like Circle can come in and actually make Polo more valuable by kind of cleaning them up, and and not just in terms of their practice, but actually in terms of wiping the regulatory slate clean. That's uh, it's like a get out of jail free card. Hey, sell it half your valuation, and uh, and we'll get you out of jail for free. Probably worth it in the long run. Probably worth that that haircut that they sold for. Uh, and so let's dive into that a little bit. Uh, so regulation in this space, very gray area right now, extremely gray area. Uh, how do you, I don't want to say how do you see it evolving. What in your mind would be the most responsible way for it to evolve going forward? Because it's a very, you don't want to over-regulate too early. And you, obviously you don't want people getting scammed. You don't want BitConnects happening and stuff like that. BitConnect! <laughs> but... You do have to pay. The, you do have. To, it is a, a delicate balance that you have to to achieve at a certain extent. Like, what do you think that delicate balance is? How much is too much regulation too early, and how much is too laissez-faire for your retail investor? It's really, really tough. Um, I think it's almost impossible to identify what's legitimate. I mean, there's some really clear frauds, right? BitConnect was a Ponzi scheme mm-hmm. by construction. Yeah. Um, and you have some, you know, really explicit frauds. Um, but there's a lot. I mean, Bitcoin maximalists claimed Ethereum was a scam. 
Um, there's a lot of things that that you can't you don't you know new economic models new fundraising models, it's really hard a priori to say if it's good for investors or not, if it's good innovation or not. And that's almost part of the definition of innovation is that most people will look at it and not see the value. So um, I think it's it's really tough. There's a lot of legitimate gray area where it's very hard to say, like, even is this a scam? Like, like how, do, how should we think about that? So there are people who said, for example, that um, developers doing an ICO and giving themselves 30% of the tokens is a scam. I would actually argue against that and say, you might not like it as an investor. It might be unfriendly to investors. But if it's transparent, it actually incentivizes development. And I'm not saying it's good, but it's not a scam. It's transparent. It's just a, it's a fundraising model. It's a capital structure model. So my point is, though, that there's kind of some legitimate disagreement over some of these structures. Um, but at some point, you could push that structure enough where, well, what if developers keep 98% of the tokens? Um, no, no one's probably no one's going to invest in that except for the dumb retail guy who just doesn't know, doesn't know what they don't know. Sounds like a lot of Bitcoin talk.org users in 2013, 2014 getting yeah. into pre-mined altcoins. So I, I think I think it's it's legitimately hard to come up with perfect regulation in the space. What always happens with new innovation is you always have a lot of scams, you always have a lot of harebrained ideas, you always have a lot of capital gets gets destroyed. Same happened in the tech boom, um, and I think that mostly doesn't matter. So the amount, the size of the losses, the magnitude. Are relatively tiny. So you, you look at the size of BitConnect. If I mean all of cryptocurrency put together is 450 billion dollars, um, a single major innovation to come out of the industry, just one. So if you think about like if every single dot com from the 90s went bust, but we got Amazon. Amazon actually created more wealth than every single IPO that failed lost. So mm-hmm. similarly, if one cryptocurrency comes out of this boom, whether it's Bitcoin or Ether or something that doesn't exist yet that is fundamentally transformative. Um, maybe Amazon's, I mean, actually, I, I would argue Amazon was fundamentally transformative, but maybe Google's a better example. Something like search or social media like Facebook. If one good thing comes out of it, that's likely to overwhelm the bad things. And so I, de- I definitely would err towards the side of under-regulation. I would mm-hmm. rather a f- you know a couple more mom and pops lose their money. as I don't want them to lose their money. I would rather them not. I try to educate. I try to be help this industry self-regulate and be a good actor. But I would rather... 100,000 people each lose a million dollars, but we get our Facebook, we get our Google, we get our Amazon, then squelch that. And we're at a very dangerous point, I think, in, in regulation where um, these things have become so much more mobile. So 50 years ago, people weren't going to change countries for the most part for a better regulatory environment. Even in the 90s, they mostly weren't. Today, we're, we're seeing people move we're, yeah. you're very aggressively. So, so and, and it's both the wealthiest, so it's the tech billionaires, the Silicon Valley elites move, and it's the young up-and-coming who are confident in themselves it's the Vitalics, the people who are going to launch the next Ethereum. They will move to a jurisdiction that is friendly to them. And so the U.S., if we if we have um, fundraising rules and regulation on crypto that are too unfriendly, it's just going to move elsewhere. It'll move to South Korea or Japan or Switzerland. Switzerland, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, definitely don't want to shoot yourself in the foot. And that's, um, that's something that I'm worried as a U.S. Uh, citizen is that the SEC has been shooting a lot of warning shots across the bow of the industry, uh, specifically in the last six to eight months. They have, so I, I actually, I don't think what they've been doing is terrible in the sense that um, they've mostly bifurcated and they've basically said a crypto asset that didn't have a fundraiser is almost certainly fine. So the head of the CFTC, uh, Giancarlo, has has been exuberant supporting Bitcoin, saying he wants his kids to my Bitcoin, he loves Bitcoin. He was very, very, very impressive in that Senate hearing a couple of weeks ago. Uh, definitely. And, and then the comment is, well, if you're raising money and it looks like a security and smells like a security, it should be regulated like a security for the same reason that we regulate securities. So that I actually don't hate that bifurcation. The real problem right now is 
one of the promises of cryptocurrency is it's a way to monetize open source development. So a problem with the internet is all the smart people are, and entrepreneurial people are working on Facebook. No one's working on FTP or HTTP because mm -hmm. you can't monetize open source. So part of the pitch of cryptocurrency is it's a way to attach a token to open source development and incentivize smart people to work on things that otherwise fall under the tragedy of the commons, things that otherwise we all want and need. We want the internet backbone to be better. We want HTTP to be better. Um, but no one's willing to work on it because you can't get paid. So the problem is if you don't allow for utility tokens, if you say that everything that raises money, um, even with airdrops, so there's even a discussion that maybe even airdrops are securities. Um, if everything that raises money is a security and needs this very heavy-handed regulation, then you kill that entire area of economic innovation. Mm -hmm. So I think what we, what we need, what I would want, is clear delineation by the SEC on what is a security that is fairly narrowly defined such that we can have utility tokens that are not securities. Um, I really dislike gray area in regulation because when you have this gray area, what it does is the good actors, the well-intentioned actors, the more seasoned veterans who generally have more to lose and are more concerned about the downside, about going to jail, about about getting a regulatory um, you know, uh, uh, penalty, they stay away. And who rushes into the space? It's the charlatans, the fraudsters, and the people who, are, who care far less about legal issues. And so when the SEC deliberately maintains a gray area, they create an environment where that market is then dominated by fraud. They create that. The fraud almost, it's, it's like you only have room for fraud. And if there's almost desperation among people to invest, that means you're pushing mom and pop into fraud. Mm -hmm. Whereas instead, let's say instead of a gray area, they just said, here's clarity. We're not going to regulate at all. You would still have the fraudsters, but you would also have the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Vitalik's, and you would also have the good projects. Mm -hmm. So it would be better to have clarity with no regulation. You would have less mom and pop losses than what we have now. The worst case scenario in general is ambiguous laws because then the law-abiding people stay away and the criminals kind of play there. Yeah. So gray area without enforcement is kind of the worst of all worlds, and that's kind of where we are right now. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree in that sense because uh, – between different sort of agencies, Bitcoin's defined differently. Like, it can, like we're about to, it's about to be defined as money that could be accepted for taxes in Arizona. Uh, I believe Florida defines it as a commodity. No, it's a currency in Florida too. You're schooling me on the state by state. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So state by state, it's different definition, and then uh, agency by agency, it's a different definition. The IRS will define it differently than the CFTC will, and it's very confusing. Like as somebody. And I'm educated in the world of finance and sort of the way these these regulatory agencies interact with investors and investment funds. And it's still at a point where it's like, I don't know what's right and what's wrong. Like, is it okay if I do this? Is it okay if I don't? And that's why I've developed the hodl mentality. It's like, all right, you're good if you don't do anything and you just hold it and, and, and keep it not moving, then you're fine. But again, that, that gray area creates a lot of uncertainty that leads people to make... I want to say leads people to make bad decisions. It prevents people from making decisions that could that could overwhelmingly benefit them in the long run, and that's something we have to figure out specifically here in the states. And maybe somebody, maybe some other country or state is gonna gonna beat us to the punch and just say, "Hey, we're we're not going to regulate you until we we can actually define what these things are because that again going back to what we touched on in the beginning nobody knows what these things are right now in particular and they have a, a, yep. a slight idea but there's no concrete definition of what these things are 
the, the threat is retroactive enforcement. So that's kind of been the U.S.'s accidental approach. So the U.S. has just basically not enforced any security law on ICOs. The first uh, ruling that I, um, I, I guess there were some exceptions about fraud, but like the Dow ruling in the summer, um, last summer, was one of the first shots across the, the bow saying these may be securities, we're going to kind of come after them, and the SEC has issued more and more warnings. But um, until, you know, just a year ago, they basically were hands off. The problem, though, is you fear retroactive enforcement. Mm -hmm. So even before the Dow ruling came out, like the SEC could today put someone who ICO'd two years ago in jail, which seems very unfair because the SEC had refused to give guidance. And so a lot of well-intentioned people are asking the SEC for clarity. They're saying, we, we want to know what's right and wrong. We want to play by the rules. Please give us clarity so that we can have a fair laying pl level playing field and so we can kind of obey everything. So the, the, the good thing is the SEC is moving forward on this. They are gathering information. They're very focused on it. Um, it's going to take some time to play out. So they're probably in the next... I, I hear rumors that in the next few weeks there's going to be some enforcement actions against ICOs. Those are only rumors. Um, but eventually, I mean, the SEC has said they're going to do that. They said they're going to go after more and more ICOs. Um, so it's just a question of kind of when and how soon. Um, and then some of those enforcement actions will, will be tested in court. Courts may strike some of them down as overreaching. And then legislature will have to kind of come back and pass new laws. So all of this, I think, will take 12 to 18 months to play out until we have, you know, a better clarity on the space. And in the meantime, there are – at the moment, there's this weird gap where, like, there is no exchange right now that is registered to trade – registered token securities in the US. So I can do a registered ICO that is like a Reg D offering. You literally cannot resell that token, period. There's no exchange really? that can host that. But there are exchanges that are gonna be launching in the next six months. There's a, there's a handful of projects that, um, a, a very small number really, but um, that are very, very credible, that know their stuff, that have been you know dealing with regulators for 25 years, that have worked directly with the SEC, that have all their ducks in a row that are gonna be launching those exchanges. And so I think what you're gonna see in the next six months is something of a bifurcation. It, it's, it's kind of similar to what we have in equities right now. So very few companies IPO, because the IPO process is so expensive and so daunting. Mm -hmm. So we've ended up with a bifurcated market in equities where more and more companies just stay private because why go through the hassle? And then you have a small number of giant companies that do IPO because there are some benefits. Um, I think what we're gonna see in crypto land is a small number of large you know, um, things that are a little bit more like Telegram or like uh, the Kick deal with Kin, more corporate type deals that are very large that go through the hassle, that get, that do, f you know, fully registered offerings, that get listed on registered exchanges. And then you'll have everything else that is kind of hoping to go unnoticed, that's small, that isn't going to deal with that, the massive regulatory and legal overhead that entails, and that will trade on exchanges in Hong Kong or Switzerland or decentralized exchanges. So I think we'll end up with this kind of bifurcated. Mm -hmm. Is uh, what Overstock's working on? Zero uh, mm -hmm. XT? T zero. T zero. T zero. So that would be an example of sort of one of these. Yeah. One of these exchanges that has their ducks in a row. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I would hold them up as a shining light. Um, I, I don't know if they have all their ducks in a the row. They were definitely one of the projects trying to do that. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's uh, let's take a little backpedal here. We're gonna backpedal. Let's backpedal to what these exchanges will be holding, which is utility tokens and quasi-securities. What is the purpose of utility token? How does it differ from Bitcoin? And how? what does it innovate on? Like, why do we need these tokens? So a lot of, um, just to let you know up front, I'm a Bitcoin maximalist. I'm very skeptical of the token economy and what's going on there. 
Um, obviously you, that's why I, I wanted to have you on. I've had a lot of maximalists on a lot of Bitcoin developers in particular, but I am ardently on a path to, to, to learn more about the token economy. I mean, I've read as much as I can, but from a UX perspective, so I come from a design background as well. After I, I left finance, I went to go study UX design and just from a UX perspective, in my mind, the token economy just seems too arduous to sort of force users to use these tokens and 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 create basically new tendencies of how people use technology so how do you see this evolving like how do you see utility tokens working out in the future uh so i'm skeptical as well especially short term i think we're on the wrong side of the gartner hype cycle Mm -hmm. Um, people are super excited about every possible use case for cryptocurrency and decentralization and most of those use cases are just way too early so one analogy I like is in 1995, you had um, online retailers selling, trying to sell clothing through the internet. You even had, um, you even had uh, online video streaming. So you had people on AOL dial-up modems and then other people trying to like video stream sports. So just obviously the market was not ready for it, or you didn't have the infrastructure, you didn't have the user base. There weren't enough people on the internet to support those businesses. So most utility tokens, we have the same problem. Um, very, very roughly, as a rough guess, probably 100 million people around the world own any cryptocurrency. And most of those people own it passively. So they own it in the form of an exchange-traded note, or they own it via Coinbase, and they leave their Bitcoin on Coinbase. So they're not users. They're, mm-hmm. they're speculators passively. You've probably something like 10 million users of cryptocurrency, meaning they control their own private keys. Um, a, a, a number I heard today is that 1 million people have installed MetaMask, which is a way to access the Ethereum blockchain and install mm-hmm. ap- uh, decentralized applications. It's not the only way, but it's probably the biggest. So you've probably got a few million people that are your potential market to use it, Adapt right now. Yeah. A few million people. So even if you come up with something that is absolutely amazing, whether it's an amazing game or an amazing, you know, life-changing utility, you know, you've got a couple, an audience of a couple million people that, are, that might use it. Um, some of that is UI, uh, so there's a lot of problems to be solved there. Some of it is security, right? So um, people are rightfully concerned about trusting a smart contract with their money. Um, there have been a lot of losses. Uh, it, it's hard to use an iPhone app with cryptocurrency. We're not that confident with private key storage, for example. Um, some of it is, is uh, yeah, I already noted UI, but it's, it's kind of hard to, to, under, to overemphasize. It's so important that cryptocurrency is really hard to use, and these um, decentralized applications are pretty much impossible to use. I mean. <laughs> You almost need to be an engineer, like even navigating MetaMask, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's not that it's rocket science, but it's like you know, you, someone who just downloads it from scratch is just going to give up on it after three minutes. That's just yeah. kind of the reality. Um, so I share your skepticism. All everything I just covered, though, is kind of a, a time sensitive thing, right? Mm-hmm. That suggests that maybe it's five years too early, but that we'll get there. The bigger question is the fundamental value proposition. What DApps should exist? What DApps have a reason to exist, even if everyone has MetaMask installed, if everyone's prepared to use them? Um, and the answer, I think, is is it, it's, it's simultaneously not that many are critical, but I actually think a lot will exist. So let me kind of elaborate on that a little bit. Um, a good kind of flow chart of, for cryptocurrency is the first one is, does it need to be decentralized? And if the answer is no, it shouldn't have anything to do with the blockchain. Mm-hmm. And the answer is no for almost everything. Yeah. Decentralization comes at a huge cost. Blockchains are terribly inefficient. Um, you know, in the U.S., one of the reasons why you can't buy Bitcoin, why you can't buy coffee with Bitcoin in many places is because people are happy using cash. They're happy using uh, Venmo or PayPal or their credit card. These are not huge pain points for the most part. Um, so when do you need decentralization? 
I, I think there's only a few reasons. Either you need censorship resistance, so it is critically important that authorities of one sort or another are not able to censor you. They're not able to prevent your communication, either your transfer of value, your transfer of data. Um, there aren't that many, you know, there, there are certainly people who need that desperately around the world, political dissidents, online gamblers, uh, people in uh, totalitarian regimes trying to move their money out. But it's not that many, you know, people day to day. It's certainly not that many Americans. Another is judgment resistance. So if you want your assets to be secure from seizure, like a Swiss bank in your pocket, that's another use case. Um, but when we get into applications, it's pretty rare. Like it, CryptoKitties, for example, is centralized. CryptoKitties runs, it is. you know, it's controlled by, by one team. Uh, there's no reason it couldn't be run on Amazon Web Services or on a single server. And so people are paying tons of money in gas fees to play with CryptoKitties on the Ethereum network because it's cool. It's fun. But um, CryptoKitties is not a killer app of Ethereum. Now, when they add decentralized collectibles, that actually will be. It's one thing I'm trying to grasp my, like, conceptually grasp my mind around. It's like, why, why are these these collectibles, these digital collectibles? How do they have value? In my mind, and again, I'm a pessimist, maximalist, but in my mind, it's just a continuation of this cons uh, conspicuous consumption that we're trying to get away from uh, in our in our so that's basically what satoshi was trying to get away from in the genesis block he made an overt statement like hey we're trying to get away from this banking system which which incentivizes fiat and and conspicuous consumption basically and sort of these crypto kitties these crypto all-stars which was a funny a funny revelation that happened in the last couple of weeks but in my mind they're they're a continuation of this continuous conspicuous consumption that we're trying to get away from i fundamentally in my mind can't find the value proposition of digital collectibles why am i wrong uh i i think it's it, it, it it's hard from scratch to explain why people collect things um but mm -hmm. I, I think we can look around the world and and people like a huge percentage of people collect something. So, and the idea that almost everyone has attachment to physical goods, it's kind of deceiving ourselves to pretend that we don't. So even if it's a favorite t-shirt, right? We, we, we all have attachments. We, we might have modest tastes. So like I very actively try to cultivate hobbies and, and it, it, to the extent I'm gonna collect something, I, I like deliberately will channel that towards things that are inexpensive. So as an example, like I went on a camping equipment binge and I bought all of the absolute best camping equipment in the world. I bought like the ultralight tent, the ultralight sleeping bag, the ultralight, you know, and I, I totally splurged, right? Went crazy. Every, you know, I, I spent five times as much on a tent as I needed to to get something that's two ounces lighter and I spent a total of $3,500. Because mm -hmm. camping equipment, it's kind of hard to blow that much money on, right? Whereas like, if you have a hobby of collecting Fabergé eggs, <laughs> you know, um, or, or like expensive watches, or right? there are a lot of hobbies that naturally are very expensive. Um, but we all have things, I, you know, I, I think it's very human nature um, is kind of what it comes down to. Sometimes it is cultural significance, so people will, will collect things that are of uh, religious significance, cultural, maybe patriotic. People might collect flag pins. Um, I think, the, I mean, the, the analogy, it, it, yeah, it's hard to prove why collecting has value. What I can try to say is why digital collecting has value. So if you think about the value of a Mickey Mantle card or a Nolan Ryan card or whatever, that card costs three cents to make. Mm -hmm. It's only scarce because you're trusting the manufacturer not to make more, and you're trusting that you can differentiate a counterfeit from something real. So every year at Sotheby's and, and the other auction houses, uh, there are lots of counterfeits that get sold. The world's best experts get get tricked by 
a bottle of wine that claims to be 120 years old but is actually 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, so the point is, like, you're buying, you're, you're, you're coveting a Mickey Mantle card that's $20,000 that is actually three cents, objectively. And you're imparting value because you think it's scarce. Well, with the digital collectible, you can actually have much more confidence that it's scarce than that Mickey Mantle card. The Mickey Mantle card is more likely to be counterfeited. It's more likely to be um, remanufactured, reproduced, you know. Um, so, it, but digital collectibles are not the most exciting use case. I do think they're real. I do think they're going to be very large, just because humans like collecting things. The collectible market is something like $30 trillion. It, it's even hard to put a number on it because how you define collectibles matters. But you're looking at a gigantic global market, far larger than gold. Mm-hmm. Um, I think more interesting use cases for utility tokens, um, I really come back to the ability to monetize open source development is is actually world changing. Is actually fundamentally really important. It, it's similar to the idea of like like why was having companies world changing? Well, one thing was being able to separate the work from the capital was really really valuable because it meant instead of you know you having to uh, buy land and farm it yourself, you could actually kind of build a factory and hire people to work for you. Dramatically increase global productivity. So here we kind of have something similar. Um, there's now the ability for other people to provide capital to develop something that that is a common good, a common good like an internet protocol or a new ride-sharing app or something like that. And everyone gets ownership in it, so it is it is kind of more democratized in that sense. It's not just five VCs that get to, to, to generate that profit. Um, I think that's, you know, that will generate trillions in, in global wealth. I think it's, it's actually a game-changer economically. I would agree. I mean, the... Again, I'm still trying to wrap my head around the whole utility token. Like, why not just use Bitcoin? Yeah. So no. So let, let's use a specific example. Um, so I don't know if Filecoin is going to be the winner for decentralized file storage. I don't even know how large a use case that is. But we can use it as an example at least. Um, so with Filecoin, you could use the U.S. dollar. You could use anything as payment on this network. Um, so why use Filecoins? Well, a few things. One. By using a cryptocurrency, at least, instead of fiat, you're able to have programmable money that is native to the programming language. You're able to remove all intermediaries. And so that allows for some really interesting things. So I can have an app on my phone that, let's say, it wants to uh, dynamically rent out storage space. It can do that at the program level. No human ever needs to be involved. No other company needs to be involved. It can dynamically purchase additional file storage space as usage increases from the Filecoin network. Mm -hmm. So you remove a lot of friction. That lets you build these kind of stacks of applications that are all communicating with one another without any API or interface, just like in a very, very simple programmatic way. I think that's actually transformative. Um, that, that's, just, that's one thing. But another is that, that I don't think you can emphasize enough is this new fundraising model in which the network participants own the network and fund the network. So it's a way of overcoming tragedy of the commons. If, you know, um, I, I actually, let me use a different project as an example. So ORCID is a project that aims to be, um, it's a little bit like Tor, although they don't like that comparison. Uh, it's a, it's a anonymous internet. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I apologize to the Orchid team if I'm mischaracterizing the project, but their premise is that um, there's gonna be a bunch of nodes all run around the world by volunteers, and those nodes will be necessary to access the network, and it will all be routing traffic such that, um, let's say you're in China, they won't be able to censor you, and they won't be able to, and if you're a political dissident who uploads a comment to a website, they won't be able to do horrible things to you. Um, so let's say you want to launch Orchid, right? And you're an individual, you're an entrepreneur, you don't have a huge amount of money, and it's not really necessarily going to be profitable, right? Maybe it'll be marginally profitable, but it's not It's not the kind of thing VCs are necessarily interested in. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you can try to raise charity money, but um, that's that might be tough. But instead, you can actually say you can crowdfund it 
in a way that gives the people who invest direct ownership of what they then need to use that network in a direct intrinsic way. Um, I think that's incredibly powerful. So a, a billion Chinese people, or, or let's say 50 million people are interested in that, can actually crowdfund this new protocol and directly own the tokens that they then can use on that protocol. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. I agree. I'm just conceptually, I don't know why we need to spin up all these different protocols. So for me, from a design perspective, going back to design, like I think Bitcoin at the protocol level, then you have something like the Lightning Network second layer, and then you have something maybe colored coins on a third layer, and you just hook everything into the Bitcoin protocol to keep it sort of easy from a UX perspective to know that at the end of the day you're you're securing everything down to one protocol at the base level. Like I think the leaps and bounds that we're creating with this token economy of having to buy Bitcoin, buy Ethereum, then trans. Sure transfer it to this to this uh, utility token to then use on a network again in my mind seems too arduous for your day-to-day -day user like again like i said when i was describing this podcast i'm trying to extend an olive branch between the uber technical side of cryptocurrencies and the masses who don't even want to think about it they just want to use stuff like absolutely so so you're not going to be converting you're not going to be if you want to use the orchid realistically in 10 years assuming that protocol succeeds you're not going to be taking bitcoin putting it on exchange buying their token mm -hmm. what will happen is a lot of this will happen without the user knowing they're using a token at all it'll mm -hmm. happen at the application layer mm -hmm. so um here's how that could work in practice let's say I, I have an app that that feels and looks like paypal or venmo it's very user friendly it's very easy maybe it's connected to my bank account and then I install my decentralized Uber app. I'm not saying Uber is something that's necessarily great to decentralize, but just as an example, I install my decentralized Uber app. I hit a button to call a ride. And without me even knowing it, maybe, and it shows me that the fee is $10. Without me even knowing, maybe it's converting my $10 into Bitcoin and then Bitcoin into this Uber coin and then paying my driver the Uber coin. And that Uber coin then gets converted back to Ethereum on his end or, or, or Yuan or Ruble or whatever he wants on his end. And all of that can happen at, within the application without me ever knowing. Mm -hmm. And and I think this idea of the, of the application stack is interesting where you can, by using Facebook coin in 10 years, you may be using eight different protocol coins without knowing it because mm -hmm. the application you're using takes US dollars. It's then paying for file space using Filecoin, which it buys on a decentralized network programmatically. And it's also buying uh, CPU power from something like Golem. And it's doing that by buying those coins. And it's it's using, maybe it's anonymizing by, via Zcash. And it's buying Zcash on a decentralized exchange. And it's doing all of that automatically at the program level. So I think from a UI perspective, it can be totally solved. Yeah, that's, um, but is this possible with just Bitcoin? That's what I'm trying to get at as a maximalist here. Like, is it like eventually, obviously it's not possible now, but can you conceptually see it being possible with from a maximalist point of view where you have the the protocol stack with bitcoin the protocol level and lightning something above that and something above that um it is, so I, I think the way this is going to play out um it's something i spent a lot of time thinking about is a kind of competitive strategy so something missing in the crypto space you have you have some smart people who can think about kind of basic economic principles obviously game theorists engineers very few people think MBA is almost a dirty word, right? No one likes the business people in crypto. Um, and I don't really, I think of myself more as an investor than and as, a, as a business kind of mind. Space is huge on Nassim Taleb, all right? This is, <laughs> this is an anti-academic space to an extent. 
But uh, you know, I took my my intro to competitive strategy class at, at doing my U Chicago MBA, and and um, there's some valuable thinking there in terms of what economic forces are at play uh, and what will drive what what drives a winning protocol. What drives um, is this going to follow a power law? Is it going to be winner take all? You know, I spent a lot of time thinking about that, and I think. Um, I think you are going to have one base layer, or maybe it'll follow power law. Maybe you'll have one that has 70% of the market, another that's 20% that are a security layer, that are a settlement layer. Mm -hmm. And I think the differentiating factor there is basically decentralization, stability, and security. It's If you're going to trust that layer with billions of dollars, you want the code to be unchanging and obsolete, which, which is kind of an important statement, right? It's slow and dumb to an extent. Exactly. Yeah, slow and dumb. Um, it can't be hard forking every year. It can't be innovating. It has to be obsolete. And you really don't care about fees because you're only using it as a settlement layer. So, um, and then on top of that, you might have something like Lightning Network that's doing tons and tons of transactions and settles to the Bitcoin blockchain once a day or once a week or once a year. Um, and it could be something else, like maybe you're making use of Orchid or Ethereum or another DApp platform or whatever, and it's settling to Bitcoin. And that entire platform is settling to Bitcoin every 10 minutes. So you're making use of Bitcoin security, but you're also getting, if you want to program in Solidity, instead of uh, Bitcoin script, you get to do that. You can program mm -hmm. in Solidity, you can create your dApp, and then just have it settle. So in that scenario, I would think that much of the economic value would likely accrue to Bitcoin. It probably accrues to that base layer. This is entirely speculative. Like, we don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to kind of think it through, and I think most of the economic value accrues to that base layer. Um, but with that said, I, I never I push back hard on the idea of couldn't you do this with Bitcoin because that's not how life works. So mm -hmm. couldn't you code everything in the world with C plus plus? Why do we have thirty programming languages? Couldn't you get anywhere you want to go in a Jeep Grand Cherokee? Why do we have fifty Jeeps and fifty cars and motorcycles and airplanes? Couldn't you, um, you know, you can go down this list like 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 couldn't everyone tell time with a Casio watch? So why do we have fifty watch manuf you know or not fifty? Why do we have five thousand watch manufacturers? Um, the reality is there is differentiation and preference. So some people want to code in C++, others want to code in Python, just individual preference. There's differentiation in use case. So for some things, you might, for a dress dinner, you want a Rolex, and for, you know, if you're going mountain climbing, you want some cheap sporty watch. Um, and uh, and there's brand and, and, and community. So, for example, a, a project that I advised um, is uh, called Pink Coin. And Pinkcoin, um, I've never, I'm not recommending it as an investment. I've never recommended it as an investment, but it's a branded, the way I think of it is, it's a community that wants to be charity fo focused. Yeah, very, very admirable community. Yeah. And so people, like, there was surprising pushback from the crypto community. There was like, this is a scam, and, and why don't you just give Bitcoin to the Red Cross? And my answer was, was like, why do people wear Livestrong bracelets? Why do people go to group exercise classes? If, why do people do Race for the Cure? I can just work out in my garage. I can just work out alone, right? People like community, like mm -hmm. simple fact of life. Human beings are communal, right? We like community, not everyone, but but a lot of us. And so um, I think branded cryptocurrencies uh, are not, are, have value just because of that. Yeah. Yeah, that's, um, again, this is something we're all learning together. I'm trying to put it, put it together in my mind alone. And it's, it's, it's a mind fuck. It is. Because what I fall back to in the conversation that I have in my head sort of towards the end of the day, I talk to myself, if, if, if some of you freaks don't, um, is are we comparing these protocols, are we making sort of non-relevant comparisons? So a lot of people like to compare the current cryptocurrency bubble with the dot-com bubble. I think that's a terrible comparison because we're dealing with a completely new asset class with a completely new animal, a completely different perspective in my mind. Um, so... Again, like you said, like people like 
having communities, people like separate, like live strong bracelets and stuff like that and watches. What I, th- I think in my mind, what I've come to at this point in my journey down this Bitcoin rabbit hole is that like, so when you said people like different watches, I'm thinking of Bitcoin as the sort of the widgets within the watch, you know, that make those watches run. I'm not thinking of it as sort of Rolex versus Bravidia or Shark Watch or whatever. I'm thinking of the nitty gritty sort of nuts and bolts that make those watches run. I'm thinking they could be built. I mean, I mean, it's the what I'm trying to. What's the word? What it, what makes watches the? Uh, oh, the movement. The movement. I mean, movement. But like, what are the uh, the circular gears? Gears, exactly. The <laughs> gears. So I'm thinking of Bitcoin at at the level is the gears that make the watch run. Then you'll build brands on top of this. This is Marty's uh, horological hour for those just joining in. Ari, we get cosmic here on Tales from the <laughs> Crypts. All right, we get we get as philosophical as possible, you know. And the whiskey helps. Um, so I am enjoying it. Thank you. Well, again, I have to I have to bribe people to come into this studio somehow. <laughs> Usually, it's whiskey or another form of alcohol. So, again, conceptually, just walking through it, like that's where I'm at, and. That's what I'm trying to figure out. Is Bitcoin sort of the widgets within the watch? Or is it another brand of watch that is competing against? Is it a Rolex versus a Shark Watch or a Bravidia? Shark Watch is a terrible comparison to a Rolex because it's digital. But that's. do you understand where I'm coming from? Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting way of, of framing the question. Um, I think it's both. So, so when you think about Bitcoin, it is both a brand and it is a community and it's code, and it's a structure, right? And it's it's the gears themselves. And um, for some use cases, it may be better to have different gears. So um, Bitcoin, for example, is a very limited scripting language. And the benefit of that is it's harder to mess up. It's, it's fairly easy to write code that you're gonna be confident runs the way you expect in Bitcoin. Um, but you're, you're more limited. It's hard to write complex code, and there's some things you literally can't do. And Bitcoin maximalists will say, there's nothing worth doing that you can't do in Bitcoin. Uh, and that that's kind of a separate and, and interesting discussion. But um, so it, you know, versus with Ethereum with Solidity, there's pros and cons of the programming language. But beyond that, it's also a different community and a different brand. Mm-hmm. And the community matters a lot in terms of um, like I think a mistake a lot of people make is a cryptocurrency is not the code. The code is open source. I can fork Bitcoin tomorrow into Ari coin. It will be identical from a code perspective. No one will mistake it for Bitcoin. Um, so what is cryptocurrency? I think it's code plus people. And that, that's true in a literal sense, which is that uh, like the, the way Bitcoin works, its resiliency, its strength, its, its ability to store value depends on the game theory, which depends on the community. So if I know, like an example, Ethereum is probably the best example. So in 2016, in uh, I think it was June, um, Ethereum hard forked into Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. And that produced two uh, more homogenous communities. So initially you had one... Uh, Heterogeneous, heter, heterogeneous, I'm mispronouncing, heterogeneous community um, made up of people with different views. And then you had this hard fork, and the people who liked the idea of hard forking to recover funds went into Ethereum, and the people who didn't went into Ethereum Classic or just left that community entirely. And Ethereum at that point was then fundamentally different from its community, which was that it was more likely to support a more centralized leadership and more likely to support a future hard fork. And Ethereum Classic was less likely to do either of those things because they had established precedent and they had changed the stakeholders. Um, so I think it's totally reasonable to say, imagine if, you know, let's say Bitcoin forked into two identical chains, 
identical from a code perspective. Let's say they changed one opcode such that the two were not interoperable. Right? They changed so they, the address structure or something like that. Yes. Yeah. I, I, uh, yes. So they, they changed in such a way that the two were they were two separate chains that were not could not kind of overlap um, with no technical attacks. Um, but they now had different communities. So maybe one group loved core and one group, you know, whatever loved. Uh, it was one group was more libertarian and anarchist, and one group loved regulation and wanted to embrace regulation. Um, those would be two different assets despite having the same code. And I think there's some people that would be drawn to one and some drawn to the others, even though the gears are identical between the two, they are fundamentally differentiated. And some people will prefer one versus the other. And one is not objectively better than the other. No, I think what we're getting at here that is that this is a human psychology project more than a, more than a technical project, which is a rabbit hole I'd love to dive down. Because a lot of what these assets are built off of our narratives and humans are very susceptible to narratives that's been the theme of the last month is narratives on this podcast and it's interesting to see in real time people sort of uh congregate around certain narratives and again i'm a maximalist i congregate around a certain narrative that says hey I think this is a once-in-a-lifetime sort of happening where you have Satoshi Nakamoto airdropping this on humanity, and we're like the monkeys in uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey staring at the the black slab, like, what the hell is going on here? Uh, and I think it's going to be impossible to beat the Satoshi narrative. So that's where I come from, as, from a maximalist perspective, is that it's going to be impossible to beat Satoshi's narrative in the long run. And I can see from an energy uh, consumption perspective, this being a zero-sum game in the long run because you need sort of the energy to mine these these cryptocurrencies and to secure the networks. And where I come from is you're never going to beat that narrative. And at the end of the day, you're fighting for scarce energy resources that need to secure these networks. And that's where I sort of build my maximalist position from. What would you have to say to that? Oh, there's, there's so much in there to unwrap. I think I, I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to slightly dodge and and dive into something that I think is is related and interesting, and hopefully you'll forgive me because there's a lot of little rabbit holes we can go down there in terms of like proof of work and first proof of stake. But I think something really interesting that I'm thinking about in terms of the narrative is, so Venezuela just launched their cryptocurrency, or at least say they did. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if it works. Or... We actually the guest that we had on Fridays from Venezuela walked us through the Petro. It's not a cryptocurrency. Okay, okay, I I will totally defer to them. This is not something I've. I, in fact. Um, it's unclear if a U.S. investor can invest in it. It might be treason. <laughs> you'll get shanked. You'll get sanctioned. You'll right. You'll right. be treasonous. It's. I, I have to admit that 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 sounds at least like a good bar story, right? <laughs> I, the, the, the guilty of treason, but uh, maybe after you get out of jail in sixty years. I don't. But uh, I think the way it turned out is the Venezuelan government holds all of one hundred million NEM tokens that okay they haven't sold any to the public. Gotcha. Technically. So you have Venezuela, Iran is talking about it, Russia is talking about it, and then the real one that people can't ignore will be China. And um, crypto fiat, a cryptocurrency launched by a central government, is so attractive to every government around the world because it's attractive to law enforcement because you can route out, if you can see every transaction, um, you can end a lot of crime. And, And of course, they'll emphasize things like terrorism and child porn that we're all against. Um, it's attractive to the central bank because you can do things like negative interest rates. So a lot of liberal Nobel Prize winning economists in the U.S. support eliminating cash. Um, guys like Joseph Stiglitz, Nobel Prize winner, says we should do away with cash in the U.S. so that the central bank can do negative interest rates mm-hmm. and you can't stick your cash under your mattress. You have to leave it in a bank and you have to lose money. 
um, it's attractive to the Treasury Department because they can then track every single transaction in real time and have real time um, clarity into what's going on in the economy, and they can change um, Treasury. They can they can change you know deficit spend as is appropriate. And uh, it's attractive, of course, to the IRS and any tax collection authority because then they can have full tax collection. And it's easy to sell to the public because you get the law enforcement angle. You get all the Nobel Prize winning liberal economists. And um, you tack on that a better UI. So what's amazing to me is the US dollar doesn't work on weekends. <laughs> it's a crazy concept. And right. every time I say that to people, they, they kind of scoff. And they're like, oh, you're not serious. It's like, no, like literally transfer someone $10 million on a Saturday. You cannot do not it. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. You, you, you literally need a truck full of cash, several briefcases. Um, the U.S. dollar literally does not operate on weekends. You have IOUs. You can maybe send a PayPal or Venmo payment, but that's just an IOU. You Venmo on a Friday and you forget that you Venmoed on a Friday. You might be waking up with an overdrawn account on Monday. That's... Ah, I, I, <laughs> so, you know, it, it's kind of crazy. So when a government like the U.S. eventually rolls this out, they'll roll it out with a really sleek user interface and a, a, an iPhone app that users are pretty happy with, that they're like, oh, wow, this is like a working U.S. dollar. Awesome. Um, so this is incredibly attractive to any country that leans totalitarian because it, it, it makes it incredibly easy to crack down on political dissidents, for example. Not only can you confiscate their wealth, you can make it so that no one can give them money. You can make it so that they are instantly an economic pariah where they literally cannot go to a store and buy a, a you know a bottle of water. Blacklisted. And blacklisted. And anyone around them can be blacklisted so easily um, you know, with no appeal, with no legal process. Um, so a narrative that I kind of fear a bit is right now the U.S. is pretty crypto friendly. So the, the, the draconian discussion about ICOs is about enforcing existing security laws. Mm -hmm. um, but it's pretty pro-Bitcoin and pro-Litecoin and pro the things that didn't, didn't fundraise. So what happens, though, if the term crypto starts being synonymous around the world with Iran, Russia, Venezuela, and China totalitarian regimes? Does that become – now, obviously, those are kind of the opposite of Bitcoin. So that is a permissioned closed cryptocurrency versus a public open cryptocurrency. They're kind of diametric opposites, but I don't know that most people will know that. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, it's this whole – emerging asset class comes with uh, a huge education push, like being able to define to people like, hey, this is different than this, even though it looks like it's exactly the same. Like a cryptocurrency like the Petro is not a cryptocurrency at all because it's not decentralized. It's not it, you're not able to run a Petro node to contribute to what you think the consensus consensus mechanism for the network should be. It's no, the, the Venezuelan government basically has 100 million Petro created on the NEM network. I don't even know what NEM is. Like, a, like it's been a top five crypto for like a couple of years, but literally couldn't tell you when NEM came to be, like what it is, what their value proposition is, other than allowing Venezuela to, to they didn't even ICO. Like they just created a hundred million NEM out of Petro NEM out of nowhere. I think of it like Japanese Ripple, just in the abstract. <laughs> so it, it's it's as a I I'm not an expert on the protocol by any means, but um. It's. It, I'm not saying that it's like Ripple in terms of being a, um, a DPoS system, but it's. So the, the the reason they're as big as they are is they have traction among Japanese banks, mm -hmm. and their pitch is that they're kind of an enterprise solution in mm -hmm. Japan, and they have some enterprise traction. So, that that's the shorthand. Uh, NEM is Japanese Ripple. A little divergence here. Is this coin market cap's fault that we're having all these non cryptocurrencies being defined as cryptocurrencies? Uh, well, you mean like NEM? I think NEM. They didn't list the Venezuelan Petro crypto, did they? No, no. Okay. But like NEM, like came out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. uh, so did Cardano. So did Cardano. A lot of, uh, 
protocols that. But yeah, but Cardano still has like a consensus mechanism that's clearly defined. Is NEM like? Yeah, yeah, they do. It does. All right, all right. Just making sure. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I'm, I think they're uh, the, the term legitimate has so much like political weight in this industry, right? I, I think they're a legitimate cryptocurrency in the sense that they don't look that different from most of the other in the top ten. They gave an effort. They put an effort in to, to effort sort of in. define. There's some yeah. nodes. There's some code. There's. <laughs> uh, it's. Uh, I don't think it's permissioned in any way. I. Yeah, I think it's it's open. Yeah. Well, that's the thing about the space right now. It's like nobody knows. Nobody knows to an extent because. I'll push back a little bit. NEM has the, from what I understand, the ability to blacklist payments on their network. So they're centralized to a to a very high degree. I don't. So I, I'm I'm ignorant of that. So I yeah. I, will, I will plead ignorance. Um, I don't know. So the, like Ripple gives that functionality, but only for specific IOUs that are issued. So the issuer of an IOU can then freeze that account. But XRP tokens cannot be frozen. Yeah, so that's that's another important thing. You have to you have to div, you have to basically conceptually de-alienate between Ripple the token and Ripple the protocol or right. Ripple the software. It's different so, things. Yeah, right? so I'm just saying with NEM, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't, is there a central body that can blacklist? I don't I, from what I understand, yes. Again, okay. I don't completely understand, but from what I understand, yes, there is. I, it has been brought up that, yes, if NEM wanted to blacklist certain transactions on their network, it would be pretty simple. Got it. I, I've never messed with NEM, and, and I think this shows a little bit of, of how complex and ever-changing the space is. So I spend 18 hours a day on cryptocurrency <laughs> and have for the last two years, and I know almost nothing about NEM. So it, exactly. by almost out of necessity, it like like my approach to the space is – very, a very, very tight funnel of, um, I'll generally try to learn something about the top 30 coins, but it's very much asking kind of the world's best blockchain engineers, cryptographers, what should I look at? And yeah. that gives me a fairly short list. And then I try to evaluate them from kind of a, um, a more of a trading perspective where I can add value. So, uh, you know, let's dive further into that. What's your sort of thesis behind evaluating coins? What you just, I mean, you have a world of options here. How do you decide what is important to to look at and dive into, and what is completely not even worth your time? So if we're so I, I have a trading background, and I'm not averse to trades where you're betting on market psychology. So, uh, for example, airdrops have generally been very valuable. So if you know that an airdrop is coming, and it just then it's a market timing question. How you know? Look up Z Classic. Look at its run the last couple of months. Yes, indeed. Um, Z Classic Z Classic has had quite the run. Um, so you know, I'm 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 open to doing those kind of trades, but it's not even that valuable to talk about that because that one that changes very quickly. It's kind of a greater fool's game. You're just trying to kind of like the market adapts, other traders adapt. So, um, for example, like there was a point where okay, you wanted to hold the asset through the airdrop, and now it may be becoming like Z Classic uh, may have peaked four days before the airdrop. So mm -hmm. then it becomes like a rush for the exits, right? Mm -hmm. So everyone rides the wave. Everyone's trying to figure out when's everyone else can exit. Um, but so I think it's more valuable to talk about kind of long-term buy and hold. And my view on this is uh, almost everything's worthless. So I'm very confident that of the 100 coins, 80 have no chance of and, – and it's not just that like there's hindsight bias. The fact that something failed doesn't mean it wasn't a good attempt. So most startups fail. doesn't mean that they didn't have some chance of success. But 80 of 100 coins will be worth zero. They have no chance of ever succeeding because they're attacking a, a use case that is not real. So – Trying to offer decentralized, um, would be an example, decentralized Airbnb, at least at this point in time, is not a credible use case. Um, 
the centralization of Airbnb is not a meaningful pain point. So like there are a lot of benefits that come from centralization. So it allows for um, incentives to develop good UIs and uh, network effects and um, centralized things are just faster and cheaper to run, right? So what are the pain points? Well, it allows for extraction of rent. So that centralized body can add a 20% premium to rents. Is a 20% discount enough to move away from a sleek UI, centralized, fast, cheap, optimized interface to something that's crummy? And the answer is no. People just don't do that. So there are a lot of projects like that that are decentralized Airbnb that just, it's a fundamentally broken use case. It doesn't matter how good the protocol is, it doesn't matter how good the team is, how good the marketing is, it will fail. Um, there's a lot like that. Then you have some protocols that are just fundamentally broken. Um, Iona. It's it's funny in that in that moment of hesitation, I was thinking, do I say iota or not? I, I had to say it. You know, it's funny. I, I I I'm generally pretty careful about picking fights with ten billion dollar protocols. Um, iota is kind of one that I've chosen to like pick a fight with, and it's funny how ridiculed they are by everyone in the industry. It's it's a weird bifurcation. Like every engineer, every cryptographer you talk to. We'll don't, just ridicule IOTA. Don't try to create your own fucking collision like yeah. algorithm like from scratch like over the course of three months and then not expect any blowback. Like, sorry. Well, you know, it's funny. If that was the worst thing they did, I, I would not pick on them because I, I, I respect entrepreneurs. I respect innovators. I respect technologists who push the envelope. Um, I, I, like I have a friend who uh, – a guy, Kyle Samani, who runs Multicoin, um, who's mm -hmm. a hedge fund manager I respect. I like him a lot. Um, and, and he and I just had a really quick kind of back and forth where the zero coin protocol, uh, so, so your listeners may know, may have heard of Zcash. Zcash is a, an, a, a privacy focused protocol. The pre Zcash is based on something called the zero cash protocol. The precursor to zero cash developed by the same academics was called, um, the, uh, I'm, I'm going to get confused now. It was, the, oh, the zero coin protocol, right? So before zero cash, it was zero coin. And, um, I may be messing up the jargon, but the, the zero coin protocol, um, a bug was found recently. And uh, it was written by the same academics. It was developed like, I don't know, I want to say five, six, seven years ago, actually maybe even earlier, but I, they, I think they finalized it like seven years ago. And then over a few years, it was turned into a protocol. And the, the Kyle commented something like, don't roll your own cryptography. And I pushed back and I was like, no, like we want innovation. This wasn't fly by night. This wasn't someone did a major innovation and then launched a protocol the next day. This was like academics working on this for years. And then years after that, people spending years turning it into a protocol who then gradually fundraised, gradually tested. And it's like, yeah, some of those are going to be buggy. Like Ethereum was buggy. Bitcoin was buggy. Bitcoin, mm -hmm. like there were critical bugs in Bitcoin. Um, when was the last accidental hard fork? I think, I think even was in the 20... 82 and a half million block reward. Was it that, so that one was, like 2011? I was going to say 2010. 2010. It might have been 2010. But, so there was a much more minor one in 2013. Um, yeah, that was March 13th, 2013. I am impressed. That, that was... That is encyclopedic. Well, I did, a, I did a history of the Bitcoin blockchain on this podcast, so I had to know all this stuff. Nice. And that was... That hard fork was a result, yes, of a consensus bug. Right. Consensus protocol now, bug. It was minor. It didn't cause a lot yeah. of damage. But it's just an example. Like, that was fairly late but but in the first year and a half bitcoin had tons of bugs yeah. right tons of critical critical bugs so i i don't i'm i'm, I'm not no i mean the reason why picky pick why people pick on iota is um one they promise um free and scalable transactions but they haven't solved the fundamental problem with dags that would enable that so the the one of the issues with that that is unsolved and so 
it's not that they won't ever solve it. So it's like I've had pushback when I say this and people will be like, oh, but well, you know, Ethereum hasn't solved sharding or plasma. And, and well, it's like, yeah, but they have a plan to do it. It's not there are no massive overriding clear questions they can't answer. So they're going to encounter a lot of obstacles along the way. They're solving those problems. But um, there's kind of a roadmap. They have a plan to say, we hope we'll implement sharding. We have a plan to do so. So the problem with IOTA, one of them is um, you have a tangle. And the premise is you're going to have infinite scaling by having everyone who runs a node on the network be validating transactions. And the problem is that those nodes are supposed to be able to be Internet of Things devices, things like a toaster. And the problem is that if that to and every node does a little bit of proof of work to validate transactions to prevent spam. But if it's a small enough amount of proof of work that your toaster can do it in a way that is free, then you're not preventing spam attacks. And so the reason why I IOTA right now, for anyone who doesn't know, is run off of one computer, literally one computer. I think it's called the coordinator. Mm -hmm. And when the coordinator goes down, the IOTA network goes down. And so there was a three-day period where the IOTA network simply didn't work because the, the coordinator was turned off. And so the reason why IOTA is run on one computer, at least one of them, is um, to prevent spam attacks. Because otherwise, anyone for free, it's not like a hypothetical attack. Like anyone who doesn't like IOTA could for free just overwhelm the network with fake transactions and kind of mess up the tangle. So the coordinator prevents that. And, there's, and, and the IOTA team says the coordinator is temporary. We're going to get rid of the coordinator over time. Uh, and that's a fine concept. I have no problem with the idea of boot. Like, like Satoshi mined the first block. He was the first miner. Like, it's fine. Like, for, for at least a moment in time, Bitcoin was entirely centralized with only Satoshi mining. That's mm -hmm. fine. Like, you can bootstrap. But you need a plan. And uh, I have, the, you know, to the best of my knowledge, there's no credible plan to be able to get rid of the coordinator because the spam attack issue is not solved. And it's this is not a hypothetical edge case. This is like an absolutely critical, like Bitcoin solved the Byzantine General's problem by using proof-of-work mining. It's like a core function of what made blockchains work and usable as money, and IOTA hasn't solved that. And, and they're pitching it as though they have. And so that's another issue. It's like, yeah, again, it's like a, a common problem in enterprise technology startups these days. Hey, we promise you that fun functionality. We're the marketing team. You want that? We're going to get it for you. We're going to go back to our, to our development team, and they're going to tell us we're not going to be able to do it. But we're going to promise you we're going to do it no matter what. And... It's a lot. And, and you add on that the buggy cryptography, which they then said they had on purpose so that if anyone tried to copy their source code, it would, uh, that, you know, they'd be able to sabotage their competitor. It's such um, a chicken shit out. That's like. And then, and, I, I, and then there was misleading marketing. So um, they got attacked for the use of the word partner, which I didn't care about. They, they claim Microsoft is a partner. I don't, part, partner is like, I, I, I didn't ever attack them for that. What I attacked them for was they, they wrote that uh, Microsoft and 12 other companies had deployed nodes on their network that sell data. And um, that's not true. Like, so I actually confirmed that press release with the team. And they, those companies never sold data on the network, uh, which is what that statement implies to any kind of normal person reading it. And so it turns out what actually happened was they did talk a few companies into um, running a node on a testnet. Those nodes never, as far as I know, uh, never sold data, never did anything. Um, so I called them out for the kind of misleading press release. And, you know, good actors in the space would have just said, oh, we didn't mean it that way. Like, we meant it as it's a testnet. We say that elsewhere and blah, blah, blah. But what the IOTA team has a habit of doing is personally attacking anyone who criticizes them in any way. So the reason I'm singling out IOTA and the reason why you'll find a lot of people in the cryptocurrency space who, who seem to single out iota for punishment given there's tons of scams in the space there's tons of bad actors why does iota get singled out it's because when people criticize iota even in the abstract even when they criticize the cryptography or the coordinator the team then attacks them as individuals they go after yeah. them personally 
and there aren't really many people in crypto who do that. Uh, I mean, you have politics between like Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. People attack names like Craig Wright, but like when people attack Ripple, they don't attack the developers. Like I, I've criticized Ripple from the price perspective. I respect the developers. I would never ever insult an individual who's working on Ripple. Um, and I, I never ever insulted an individual working on IOTA. I pointed out kind of like, hey, this press release is a little bit misleading, guys. Like it just doesn't match reality. And they then attack me as an individual. They attack Zuko Wilcox for mm -hmm. criticizing cryptography. They attack Neha at MIT for finding a critical fatal flaw in the IOTA protocol. And they then attack her as an individual. Um, and to me, that just like, if I, if I have to pick a giant buggy protocol with misleading marketing, IOTA becomes a pretty good target when they act like that. Yeah, easily. I mean, after that MIT uh, audit came out, what was that, April? Right. I think it was early last year, I feel like. Sounds it was, about right. Sounds about yeah, right. it was about like this time last year. And it was like, hey, we're just going to audit your protocol. We're going to let you know what we think so, like, you should work on. And again, they came at them personally. It was like, hey, these people are just trying to make sure everybody knows what they're getting into. And you're going to personally attack these academics for trying to help you out, I would argue, in the long run, saying, hey, Maybe this is what you guys want to focus on working on. Maybe you shouldn't create your own cryptographic collisions from scratch. Maybe you should trust some that have been tested for decades. And yeah, so that's one example in the space. IOTA is somebody that... one Another theme that we touch on a lot here on Tales from the Crypt is the hubris in the space. And the amount of hubris that the IOTA developers show towards critics is outrageous. And... It's one thing we aim to get through is cutting through the noise and getting through the signal uh, in this space. And IOTA is definitely a lot of a lot of noise. It's 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 a perfect example of hey, we're going to sell you the world, but on the back end, if you open up the hood and you look under the hood and what's going on, it's not what we're marketing. And that's one thing I'm trying to. Again, we're talking to the masses here who aren't as technically literate as some in this as some in this space are trying to help them sort of stay away from these types of projects so that's one thing as again and like i say i'm dumb like I, i'm not technically literate at all i cannot create a consensus protocol i can barely code html css javascript but again i fall back on heuristics like if you're trying to be overcomplicated and use jargon to sell people the world i'm going to call you out and that's sort of what IOTA has done and is drawing more attention to themselves, I would argue, uh, sort of recently with calling other people out. Like when you lash out, it's like, all right, why are you lashing out? Something must be wrong. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, and, and they picked the wrong people to lash out at. Like Zuko Wilcox is like a puppy. Like he's just a good guy. And like, like whatever you think. So Zuko Wilcox is the cryptographer who created uh, Zcash. And whatever you think about Zcash, um, Zuko's a well-intentioned good guy. I'm not saying he's an angel, but like he's he's definitely one of the better people in crypto in terms of you know trying to be honest and well-intentioned and integrity and and so he comments on your cryptography and then you try to beat him up personally. Like what are you doing? And uh, same with Neha at MIT. Um, you know these are good actors who are contributing you know academic knowledge to the space and and uh, again i'm not saying they're perfect but these are not the people you like single out to, to pick a fight with if you're if you yourself are well-intentioned um it's a real challenge in the space you know for your listeners where it's like an analogy i like to use is if the two best if the two world's best neurosurgeons are debating in front of me over which surgical technique to use i have no way of evaluating which one's right 
there's no I have no hope it's a coin flip I love that analogy um, it, they're both so far over my head that if one of their arguments seems more credible to me it just means I'm fooling myself and the same is true in cryptocurrency where and, and for me personally so I'm non-technical I was a poli-sci major at UPenn I have an MBA I have a CFA which is a, a financial um, uh, training program so you know how do I try to evaluate um, cryptography and, and engineering and I think I'm, I'm pretty good at sussing at you know working through expert networks listening to arguments and debates and trying to find um, kind of who the BSers are right and mm -hmm. and and there's a lot of debates where I don't know the right answer. So I'll give you an example. Like Greg Maxwell, uh, who is one of the Bitcoin core developers, one of the smartest people on the planet, a world-class cryptographer, world-class blockchain engineer, had a long debate on Reddit with Vitalik Buterin, who's the creator of Ethereum, and also a you know super genius, brilliant game theorist and, and blockchain engineer. And they were debating over whether proof of stake is a valid game theory system, uh, whether it's a valid consensus mechanism. And I'm not going to read that debate and come to the right answer. Uh, it's a fascinating debate. I, I, anyone who's listening might want to look it up and, and try to dive into it. But so when two of the world's best engineers disagree with each other, uh, I'm generally not going to make a bet. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, so I might, I may come to my own opinion. I do kind of have an opinion, uh, but I'm humble enough to know it might be wrong. So where I tend to, tend to look for things is where all of the smartest engineers agree with each other. I, one thing, you can adjust for political biases. So I'll give you an example. Like, if you ask a Bitcoin Core developer like some of them will be like Vitalik's an idiot. Well, obviously he's not an idiot. Like obviously not. Right? Obviously not. Say what you will. He's one of the smartest people on the planet. Like is he like maybe there's debate over is he in the same league as Greg Maxwell, but he's certainly still smarter than anyone who's listening to this and and, 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 and myself included, right? Like um you know he's, he's a, a brilliant guy and a brilliant coder. Um so maybe Greg Maxwell is an order of magnitude smarter than him, I don't know, but um there, there, you do have to adjust for politics. You do have to adjust for bias in, in whoever it is that's giving you that opinion. A Bitcoin core developer is biased, and so you have to adjust for that. An Ethereum developer is biased. Um, but with that said, I tend to look for spaces where all the engineers agree and the market disagrees. So there's a lot of protocols like IOTA where every engineer you talk to will tell you it's garbage. And then there's a lot of protocols where every engineer you talk to, or not maybe not everyone, but most will at least grudgingly acknowledge that there's something of value here, there's something interesting, something differentiating. And if that thing is trading really, really cheap and you think there's a good business use case, you think there's a good team, the things that you can evaluate, um, to me, that's what makes an interesting investment. Yeah. And uh, one of the areas I think that these developers would agree is Anon coins, right? There is, so when comparing, when comparing anonymous cryptocurrencies to Bitcoin, I think one thing that the engineers in Bitcoin would concede is that Bitcoin is not fungible right now. It is... It, it like it is easily traceable. Bitcoin is an easily traceable cryptocurrency. Definitely. So law enforcement loves Bitcoin. Yeah, they love Bitcoin. Um, so a, a good line from Zuko Wilcox on privacy is: privacy is not anonymity. Privacy does not mean that every transaction is anonymous and that no information is given. Privacy is is the ability to control that selective disclosure. Mm -hmm. So the whole push transaction versus pull transaction sort of mm -hmm. mentality. You'd be able to push yep. what you want to be seen and not push what you don't want to be seen. Exactly. And so financial institutions are going to adopt things like ZK Snarks because their clients, obviously, they have to report things. They have AML, KYC, they have regulatory things. They can't have anonymity. But at the same time, they actually are legally required to not disclose to the general public what their clients are doing. Same with medical records. If a hospital discloses your medical records to the general public, they get sued. But they have to disclose it to regulators. So that's privacy. And so um, 
the privacy coins uh, have been a, a favorite of mine. So, I mean, really since I got into the space, they've been a focus. They've been at least a third of my portfolio since I've started investing in cryptocurrency, and they still are today. I think it's still a hugely undervalued segment of cryptocurrency. Um, it's one of the only things that's actually used today. So mm -hmm. in fact, I, I constantly get asked like what cryptocurrencies I recommend. As a general policy, I won't name any for kind of obvious reasons, but there is an exception. And I make an exception because um, I view it as a long-term buy and hold and um, I don't actively trade it. And I, I don't think our position in it is gonna change anytime soon. And uh, so Monero I, is one of the only cryptocurrencies that's actually used for its purpose today. Um, so like, a, like Bitcoin is kind of used as a store of value. Ethereum is mostly used as a crowdfunding tool and maybe to pay for gas for CryptoKitties. Um, and use some other DApp platforms that are really just crowdfunding platforms like NEO and, and EOS Soon and Waves. And these things are not really used for anything. Uh, and then you have Monero, which is used on darknets and for donations to WikiLeaks and political dissidents and for people to, anon to, to anonymously or privately store their wealth. Um, there will be other privacy coins that are attractive um, over time. Bitcoin may add Schnorr signatures, confidential transactions. There's a whole lot of, of innovation uh, in the wings. But it's up in the air. No, no. It's up in the air. So we don't know what will happen. We don't know when it will happen. But even if it happens, I actually think there's room for – it's probably going to follow a power law. So you're probably not going to have one cryptocurrency that just conquers the world. Even if you have one that captures most of the value, it's probably 80% of the value. That's just how most economic things work. I hope that's how it works because – if, if, if in 10 years there's only one cryptocurrency that exists, that's a pretty fragile system, right? What if a bug is found in that system? So mm -hmm. I hope that if Bitcoin adds Schnorr signatures and confidential transactions and all this stuff and is, becomes fungible and anonymous, I still hope Monero exists because I'd want a little bit of diversification. You want that fallback. Exactly. Um, so Monero to me is, is you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's really the only privacy coin that's used at scale today. No, and that's... Um... I'm very happy you said that because my listeners will think I'm smart because that's the only other altcoin that I've ever pumped on this show. Is, that's funny. Is Monero. Because, like you said, it's the only one with a use case of people actually using it to do what it purports it will do. And that's something people have to realize is like this anonymous use case is is something that that is a use case right now. Like other than, like you said, Ethereum, its use case is spinning up ICOs. Bitcoin's use case, use case is... Arguably, store of value. Wow, the the whiskey is hitting. <laughs> Arguably, store of value, but it's not guaranteed yet. Not not you can't yeah. say for certain that it's only used as a store of value. I think Bitcoin is more of a if this shit takes off, like Bitcoin has the first mover advantage, has the Lindy effect advantage. Like I think again, the narrative advantage with Satoshi, like. Like it is, it's a bet on the future of functionalities getting built into it because I don't think Bitcoin in its current state could survive. Uh, I disagree with you there. Yeah? I think, um, well, first align. So, uh, at first, the, the disclosure in case it wasn't obvi obvious is um, that I'm long Monero. So, for any anyone listening, uh, I'm shilling a coin that I own. Um, in case, and, and Monero's a really easy coin to shill because they, they basically don't market. So Monero's marketing was mostly the lead developer, Ricardo Spagni, saying, don't buy, us. Don't buy Monero, it's a scam. <laughs> and um, I thought something was hilarious was was there's now some people are working with Monero that are starting to do a little bit of, of I don't even want, marketing's a dirty word to them. Let's, let's call it education. And I've joked with Ricardo that like the, the just moving from don't buy Monero to buy Monero 
is like <laughs> an, you know <laughs> such a leap forward in their marketing like so, you know hire a brand consultant to tell him to go from from a to b and and bam and it will double in value right just just that um oh so uh, yeah the, the the question of whether bitcoin needs to evolve um I don't think it does. So, no. so in our in our world where Bitcoin is an obsolete settlement layer, obsolete in the sense that it doesn't have all the bells and whistles of many new protocols that will be invented, but it has the advantages of uh, a stable protocol that is the most trusted because it's the oldest and unchanged, and is decentralized across jurisdictions and all of that, um, and and has a, a Lindy effect and brand effect. In that world, it's just a settlement layer, and any mm -hmm. feature you want, any feature can be layer two or layer three. So you want to program in Solidity or Python or C++ or, or Haskell or uh, any formal verification language, whatever Tezos is going to use, go go for it. And then that'll settle to Bitcoin once an hour. Mm -hmm. You just schooled me there. If I'm going to take a, a step back and if I were to rephrase what I was going to say, Bitcoin in its most perfect state would have, in my mind, Actually, you know what? I can't even say this for certain because other things could evolve in the future that would make me think, oh, it could actually be more perfect if this were added. But I think if it got to a point where it had Schnorr signatures and confidential transactions, like beyond that, you don't need anything else. It would be the perfect protocol in my mind. Gotcha. Uh, well, you know, so I, I, I don't know if Bitcoin's going to add those. Um, I think there's a decent chance uh, that it does because you can do it by soft fork. So we'll, we'll see. I, I don't. I talked. I said I got drinks with John Newberry last week, and we were talking about it. And he said five years at the least if we're going to get short Schnorr signatures and confidential transactions. It's going to be a battle, and like we, we saw with with the the Segwit battle. Like it was a battle. It was a two year battle at least, and it was contentious as we saw with the hard fork of Bcash, Bitcoin Cash. Excuse me. Um, yeah, well, so that that battle's not over, by the way. Oh God, no, it's not over. Bitcoin Cash is not going to go away quickly. No, but I, I was more worried about them a couple months ago than I am now. So the change to their uh, their difficulty readjustment mechanism actually mattered a lot. So mm -hmm. so it removed the pogo stick, which removes some of the leeching. Of, like the, there was this weird effect where hash power would switch back and forth between Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. It was very disruptive, um, and they hard forked the Bitcoin Cash difficulty adjustment mechanism. Uh, it's now pr somewhat complex. So, so Bitcoin adjusts every 2016 blocks, which is every two weeks roughly. They're adjusting every block, right? It is, but it, it's like complex. There's like yeah. a, a cap, and and I, I actually do, I need to review the exact specification. But as a result, it doesn't pogo stick with Bitcoin, so it's a less direct kind of fight for hash power. But they're still both on SHA-256. They're both fighting over hash power. It's a detente. It's a temporary, it's a disequilibrium. Well, you are providing me the perfect perfect segue. It's a conspiracy theory of the week, and that is that Cobra is trying to get Bitcoin to change the POW, the proof of work consensus mechanism, to maybe downgrade it to a GPU consensus mechanism so that Bitcoin Cash can take all the SHA-256 ASIC power and put it towards Bitcoin Cash. That's the uh, conspiracy theory of the week on the interwebs that uh, there is some... So for those of you that don't know, Cobra, uh, we're not talking about... Uh, uh, the G.I. Joe enemy? We're not talking about the G.I. Joe enemy. <laughs> we're talking about some anonymous dude who owns the rights to Bitcoin.org. Or is it Bitcoin Core? No, Bitcoin.org and BitcoinTalk.org. He owns part of these websites that are basically go to uh, 
sort of forums for people looking to learn more about Bitcoin and altcoins. Um, and he owns part of these and he's become very vocal on Twitter more recently, specifically around the need for Bitcoin to change its proof of work algorithm to resist ASICs because ASICs have become too concentrated because of Bitmain and other and the one other semiconductor manufacturer of ASIC miners. Um, and people are saying that this is a sort of a red or red herring. Is that the right term? Or sort of a distraction so that we will change the proof of work consensus so that Bitcoin Cash can take all of that ASIC mining power. Um, do you want to delve into this conspiracy theory, or are you just going to let me sound like a nut over here? Sure. So I, I have I, I don't uh, I follow Cobra on Twitter. Um, I don't know him at all. I don't know his history. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I didn't even read his open letter. I just saw the the header. So I'm I'm less informed on this than you are. Um, so I can't comment on like the conspiracy nature of what his motives are. I can comment on the idea. Um, so uh, first, GPU mining doesn't make sense. I'll say that really bluntly. Um, I've actually never heard. It, it's a weird thing to me. It's one of the very like I'm I'm really humble about most things in cryptocurrency, and humble's not the right word. It's I'm I'm stupid about most things in cryptocurrency. I simply don't have strong opinions because I don't know. So I don't know if proof of stake is going to work. I don't know if proof of space time works. I don't know. Like there's so much I don't know. Um, I have a strong conviction that GPU mining is nonsensical, and I I challenge smarter people than me to explain why I'm wrong, and I have yet to hear it. So maybe one of your listeners is probably shaking their fist angrily about why I'm an idiot. But um, So the reason GPU mining doesn't make sense is because the entire premise of proof-of-work game theory is you cannot attack the network without uh, – you have skin in the game, without shooting yourself in the foot. So if I have um, – so before Bitcoin hard forked, if I had shot 256 ASIC miners – even if I had 75% of the network, I was very unlikely to double spend. I wasn't, the 51% attack is such a misnamed idea. It's it's a very misleading idea. So what protects Bitcoin is not the decentralization of mining such that no one is 51%. It's the game theory that if someone has enough mining power to do a double spend, then they have enough sunk cost to not want to. So if someone owns 75% of the Bitcoin ASIC mining power, They've made this massive investment in ASICs that are only useful to mine Bitcoin. And if they then double spend, they're going to devalue Bitcoin and therefore devalue their ASICs, which they don't want to do. Now, there is a cost to concentration. So if one person has 75% of Bitcoin ASICs, that does produce centralization risk because maybe, let's say they're in China and the Chinese government puts a gun to their head or their kids' heads. So I don't mean to say that there's no risk to 51% uh, attacks, but proof of work game theory is premised on this idea that I can't attack a network and and retain the value of my hardware. My hardware is only useful on that one network. With GPU mining, let's say I'm mining Ethereum, and then actually I'm going I'm to embarrass myself because I don't know uh, the different GPU mining algorithms that are optimized. But uh, hypothetically, let's say you could mine, uh, actually I'm not even sure if this is true, Zcash and Ethereum with the same GPU miners. So I, I have my GPU miners, I attack Zcash, and then I, tr- I just transfer the hash power to Ethereum. So I haven't devalued my mining power, which means I have no incentive not to attack Zcash. Mm-hmm. So the problem that Bitcoin faces, right? So so for that reason, GPU mining is fundamentally, in my mind, fundamentally insecure because you can take your GPUs, attack a network, and then you have not devalued your hardware. I would agree. Um, I've yet to hear, I'm, I'm very happy to have you know the stupidity of that logic explained to me. Um, yes, there are pitfalls to ASIC mining and that it leads to concentration, but you still have the strong economic game theory. So what's wrong with Bitcoin right now? Um, you have two competing protocols that are somewhat supplements for each other in the sense that what hurts Bitcoin may, under some circumstances, help Bitcoin Cash. 
and they both use SHA-256, they use the same ASIC miners. And so if I'm Bitmain, I may, for example, sell all my Bitcoin, convert it into Bitcoin Cash, and then attack the Bitcoin network with something like a, a, a double spend attack or an extreme version of a double spend attack, which is a reorganization or rollback attack. And what that means for your listeners who are, who are not familiar with the jargon, um, Bitmain actually threatened to do this in a letter. They threatened to mine uh, overnight empty blocks for 12 hours. Mm -hmm. And they would do that with, say, 55% of the Bitcoin hash power, which they controlled at the time. And then they would dump that longest chain on the network. So the way Bitcoin nodes operate is Bitcoin nodes will automatically accept the longest chain that meets the consensus rules as valid. So let's say you know you're you're it's it's 8 a.m. You're waking up and your your node has all these transactions over the course of the night, and suddenly you get a new chain that is slightly longer that is empty. That new chain will entirely replace the old chain, and uh, it's empty. And so what that means is the entire night's transactions are erased. And so the threat of a rollback attack is devastating because it means that as long as the threat exists, even if it never happens, you can't tr spend your Bitcoin. If you're Coinbase, you cannot, uh, let's say a hedge fund manager transfers $10 million in Bitcoin to Coinbase and then wants to wire themselves cash the next day. Coinbase can't send them $10 million in cash because they don't know if the, if the Bitcoin transaction will be reversed by a rollback attack. So it wrecks havoc on any kind of business or exchange or, or trading fund or, uh, or anyone who wants to transfer large amounts of Bitcoin. Um, so what Bitmain could do, uh, and I'm using Bitmain just as an example because they control a lot of hash power. I'm not trying to defame Bitmain. Um, what Bitmain could do is, um, although actually I take that back, they did threaten to do this. So it's, it's probably fair for me to use them as an example. I would say. Um, so what Bitmain could do is, you know, they, they, they go short Bitcoin. Let's say they sell Bitcoin futures. Uh, they convert all of their assets to Bitcoin cash. They then attack the Bitcoin network with something that will fundamentally devalue it like rollback attacks. Um, and it may be that they make money doing that because Bitcoin Cash may be the winner of all of those actions, uh, at least enough that with the short Bitcoin position, um, you know, even if Bitcoin Cash doesn't fully replace, but let's say Bitcoin falls 90% and Bitcoin Cash only goes up 2x, they may still be net winners to that and their hardware may not lose much value. So this is, a, in my mind, we're in a fundamental disequilibrium state right now with Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash that could take five years to play out. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's going to resolve anytime soon. Very interesting. It, it's crazy. It's crazy the game theoretical world that we've been thrown into. With the then that's why I'm so drawn to Bitcoin is the game theory of it. It's like you have these actors and you're playing mind games. You're trying to think seven steps ahead, and it's enthralling. It's like oh shit, man. It, it's heavy. It's like oh fuck, I could lose my night, my money overnight. But at the same time, I wouldn't want to be involved in any other space in the world because it's so exciting. And this attack. It is possible. It is possible it, from a from a theoretical standpoint. It is very possible, and that is why. So my whole I had a conversation earlier before we met tonight. Like, so we're basically just waiting for new ASIC producers to enter the market. Like that is what could uh, decrease the chances of this attack happening. Is more competitors entering the ASIC manufacturing. Uh, market if you will am i correct in assuming that i think so so we, the economic forces to me at least are not clear um but yes at least short term bitmain so so i i think and i'm not an electrical engineer and i'm not an expert on mining i think what happened was bitmain genuinely innovated faster than everyone else and was a generation ahead of everyone else in the electrical engineering yeah arjun arjun balaji wrote about today um he said to say hello by the way um he's fantastic he really is he really is 
great, like one of my favorite people to meet up in the city to talk about the shit with. Um, but he said with the SHA-256 ASIC chips specifically, like from idea to concept to production was the fastest turnaround in ASIC chip mining history. Like that's how driven people were to go mine Bitcoin is that was the quickest, like, all right, we need to design this SHA-256 specific ASIC mine or chip and basically from idea to prototype to production was the fastest turnaround ever. And that's, again, what draws me to this space is that the incentives are so aligned that it produces stuff like that, where you have so many gains in efficiency from a technology perspective that it is pushing people to push the limit at paces that have never been pushed before. Yeah. Uh, so, so using that as a, a so one example of that is people sometimes bring up energy usage. So an interesting line is um, typically, I actually traded electricity forwards, which is a really weird concept. So when I was Susquehanna, Susquehanna International Group, um, I traded uh, Northeast and then Texas electricity. And the way that works is you're trading a financial contract that cash settles, betting on what the price of electricity will be at some point in time. And it's very abstract, and you can model it, but it's also very real. And so sometimes the person on the other side of your trade is a trader at a power generation plant. And so you can imagine what happens. If you uh, sell enough power to them, if you bet that electricity prices will be low, what they'll do is literally turn off their power plant. That's what Enron did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I was kind of on the other side of Enron trades. Mm -hmm. I was like not the guy at Enron. I was like the idiot who was kind of on the, I, I said I was an idiot. Like I was smart enough to know that I was the idiot, so I didn't really lose money. But I, I ended up telling my bosses at Susquehanna that I'm the fish at this table. Like we're just not going to make, like I'm trading against the guy at the power generator. Like yeah. there's no way I'm going to beat him in this poker game. I'm the fish at the table. So uh, that was a short-lived three months where I was very proud that I only lost like a trivial <laughs> amount of money um, playing in kind of a rigged game. Risk management, that's the key. That's the key. Absolutely. Lose Absolutely. as little money as possible. Absolutely. And uh, it was really clear to me that I was the fish at that table. Um, I'm totally blanking on where I was going with that. That's this, what this the whiskey will do that. This, the whiskey will do that to you. We're whiskey. talking about efficiencies. Uh, oh, oh, energy. Yes, thank yes. you. Um, thank you. So, yeah, so people brought up uh, Bitcoin's going to destroy the world, greenhouse effects. Um, so, until now, electricity usage was always local. So Texas Electricity, which was called ERCOT, which was its own electric trading center, was entirely separated from East Coast Electricity because you could not transfer electricity from the East Coast to Texas. Mm -hmm. the, you would lose like 99% of the electricity and transit because as you lose that electricity, you just kind of can't be transferred yeah. through, through normal wiring. So um, electricity has always been local. Bitcoin changes that. So what Bitcoin has done is it placed it's placed a bounty on who can source the cheapest electricity anywhere in the world to earn Bitcoin globally in a decentralized way. And that, if you think about it, is an incredible bounty to find the cheapest, most efficient source of electricity, which seems to be, I don't know if this is like a fundamental physics thing or just is, but empirically it's it's clean energy. Clean energy seems to always be cheaper. If you can go anywhere, like typically the issue is that um, okay, it's great to say you're going to get geothermal from Iceland, but no one lives in Iceland, right? Mm -hmm. And how do you get that into a city in Chicago or whatever? And so where people live has tended to be more t near like coal and natural gas and, and, and fossil fuels. Um, whereas a lot of the clean energy, things like wind, is places almost by definition like, like wind-swept plains, right, in kind of Siberia or Kazakhstan or whatever where no one lives. Um, so but now you can make use of that clean energy. And so 
there's some evidence already that Bitcoin mining has pushed the world towards greater clean energy usage. Mm-hmm. This is my favorite spin zone of people that, that don't like Bitcoin. Like, ah, oh, it's destroying the world. It's like, no, actually, it might help us save the world. And the argument is that it's going to push us towards cleaner energies bec- and it's going to be worth it because a censorship-resistant peer-to-peer decentralized network decentralized money excuse me is worth that exertion of energy and if it's helping us get to the most efficiency excuse me most efficient form of energy possible all the better like why why not go down this path like and another so here's another thing we talk about on tales from the crypt a lot is so a lot of people's notions of this space are based on anachronisms of them trying to apply old world tendencies to this new world, which we live in with Bitcoin and blockchains. So they're trying to say, all right, um, to basically make Bitcoin run, you need all this energy and it's going to basically destroy the destroy the earth because you're going to have to use fossil fuels and all that stuff to, to mine it. And it's like, no, if you take it again open the hood, take a look under the hood, you've created an incentive system to where these miners want to be as profitable as possible so they have to find the most efficient use of energy to make sure that they gain a profit. And it just so happens to be that in the future, the most efficient use of their energy is going to be with renewable energies. Am I wrong in assuming that? I am assuming. It it, it seems like a reasonable assumption based on what we see today. I don't want to... I'm... wary of making assertions i i i don't think we know exactly how this plays out from an energy perspective yeah we got so third episode of tales from the crypt we got into dyson spheres how much do you know about dyson spheres just the one sentence description <laughs> it writes a sphere around the sun sphere that around the sun the that collects energy. all the possible energy that's the total sum knowledge of that's of pierre pierre rochard thinks we're going to end up at, at uh dyson spheres mining bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies and bringing clean energy back to to wherever we live at the point in time where dyson spheres are possible that's hyper bitcoinization <laughs> uh, pierre i've actually never met pierre in person but we've uh, i've chatted with him a couple times uh a smart guy fun Love Pierre. Hey, Pierre, congrats. Just became a new father. Had a, had a baby boy a couple congrats, weeks ago. Pierre. No, and that's, um, I, I, I mean, Pierre's, I consider Pierre a friend. And uh, it's, it, it's interesting seeing somebody, he, in my mind, he has simplified this game down to something very, and what I respect is like, it's, this is the way, not this is the way it works, but like, I have this. Let me think about this for a second. Swiss, he's gotten to me. He's very, he's got very, he's very principled in his views. Like, he's a very from first principles type of person. You know, and, I, I really wish that I had a, a really simple thesis. And let's, so we can cut this out. Let's not make it about Pierre personally. So, Bitcoin maximalists in general have a very first personal. Bitcoin maximalists in general have a very first principle view of the space where, hey, we just need something slow and dumb to make a very perfect money. And then from there, we can build what everybody's looking to build. And I respect that sort of view on the space very much. I would say I respect that view over most others. Uh, So it's I I, I am. I empathize, sympathize. It's totally sensible. Um, I just, 
I almost wish that I had blind confidence in it because it would make life a lot easier and less stressful, right? If I if I had, I mean, I I envy Pierre and I envy. Um, I don't want to. The fanatic is too bad. Is a negative connotation word. I envy the religious in that regard. And you sleep easy at night. So imagine a scenario where, let's say, I think I'm seventy. Let's say I'm seventy five percent sure that Bitcoin's going to conquer the world. Um, it's very likely that I will like I'll achieve the same outcome as Pierre. That Pierre's outcome will be will be positive, but he's going to have a stress free existence. I'm going to have a stressful existence. I'm going to focus on that twenty five percent chance. So my problem with it is that um, there's a few. So one. Uh, Bitcoin may be good enough and it may have enough of a Lindy effect and enough of a first mover advantage, but it may be that there are things that are two orders of magnitude better that could replace Bitcoin. So it may be that there's a consensus mechanism that is fundamentally better in not at saving the world at green energy or anything like that, but better at being decentralized, better at being secure. So proof of work we know is not perfect. It leads to centralization of mining under, under its current form. We don't know if there's anything better. If there's a form of uh, consensus mechanism that is more Bitcoin than Bitcoin, that is more decentralized um, and is higher throughput and lower fee and every other thing that's good, uh, but if it beats Bitcoin on its Bitcoin's core features, that could kill Bitcoin. It could replace Bitcoin. Another thing is that the Lindy effect, the network effects are trivial right now. This is an argument I have with a lot of Silicon Valley VCs who, who say Ethereum's going to conquer the world because there's 4,000 devs talk, working on Ethereum, which to me is not... I, I struggle with that argument and I struggle with why they understand that argument or why they why they would pitch that argument because 4,000 is nothing. So no one uses cryptocurrency. Like simple <laughs> reality, like less than 100 million people own it at all, less than 10 million people actively use it, less than 20,000 people are developing it in any form at all, and there's less than 200 real protocol developers. And so the network effects are basically zero. Like here's a real number. Telegram is raising. Telegram uh, has already raised eight hundred fifty million dollars, and it looks like they're just getting started. Why do they need that much, though? They don't. That's a separate discussion. But eight hundred fifty million dollars, they could replicate with eight hundred fifty million dollars a huge amount of Bitcoin or Ethereum's network effect. So, what are Bitcoin's network effects? Well, they have ATMs in every major city. Two hundred million dollars, you can replicate that in a month. One month <laughs> to have ATMs in every major city supporting Telegram or Litecoin or Monero, or whatever your coin of your choice. Um, you know, Bitcoin ha is on every major exchange. Again, you give every big exchange 10 million bucks, they're going to list you. Like, mm -hmm. you get on every major exchange in a month. It's been the rumor of Binance that people have had to pay to get on, you know? Oh, rumor. Binance actually rumor. explicitly, I read an article from the Binance CEO where he said that uh, he was very, very upfront about it. He said, um, if you pay more, you're more likely to get listed. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's a, that's not a secret. That's not that's like literally an article that I read. For, I don't know the Binance CEO, CEO. That was public. Capitalism driving driving these. Um, it's not for quid pro quo. It's just if you offer a higher finder fee, you're more. Or I don't know what the term for the fee is. You're more likely to get integrated. It's not a guarantee. It's not you know. Yeah. Um, so my my point though is that if we think cryptocurrency is going to be more than a toy, because right now it's basically a toy, the assumption is that in three years it won't be a toy, or five years, or ten years that more than 100 million people will own it. Maybe it's 500 million, a billion, 3 billion people will own it in five or 10 years. Um, then the current network effects, the current user base, the current ATMs, the current is trivial. The number of new developers who are developing cryptocurrency in five years will dwarf the entire current developer base. Mm -hmm. So the current developer network effects are effectively trivial. Yeah, and so I guess, what it comes down to at the end of the day is how much do you take the origin story into consideration? And again, this is where I come from. 
again, I'm dumb. I don't know a lot about what I'm talking about. But I do realize that throughout history, humans cling to narratives. That's why religions are built. That's why people, that's why we have in God we trust on money. That's why, that's why the American dream is still a thought. Like, people cling to narratives. I don't think anybody is ever going to beat the Satoshi narrative. You didn't see the article today, did you, about Ira Kleiman suing Craig Satoshi? Yeah, I mean, that's another FUD thing. Yeah, 550,000 Bitcoin. They're going to, they say they have identifying information on who Satoshi is, correct? So the, the narrative... This, basically, if this if this lawsuit goes goes through the courts they're gonna they're gonna out who satoshi is right well so the implication is that dave Kleiman was satoshi according to the lawsuit mm -hmm. so, so first let me like add an asterisk here um people in the crypto world hate speculation over satoshi um for a couple of re and by people in the crypto world, i mean like like people like pierre like insiders people who've been in the space for a long time mm -hmm. um and the reason for that is one they don't want to endanger people's families for example mm -hmm. so if you speculate on who it is their family could be at risk um, they also just think it's fud or you know it's it's mindless speculation. So the only reason I'm 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 willing to throw you know to discuss this is because Dave Kleiman's brother just publicly sued Craig Wright. This is public record yeah. that Ira Kleiman is Ira Kleiman is effectively implying that Dave Kleiman was Satoshi and that Craig Wright worked on the project tangentially. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the implication of the lawsuit. Uh, Craig Wright's claim when he went public saying he was Satoshi, what was it a year and a half ago, two years ago? was the same, just reversing the roles. He said Dave Kleiman helped him, that he was Satoshi, and Dave Kleiman helped. Um, so I, I, I bring that up, but really just because you were just kind of, you know, hinting in those along this direction of the narrative, that if it turns out, so I don't know what's going to come out. Like, the, the people like Pierre, uh, and I use Pierre just as an example of a, a crypto insider, have a very, very high standard of proof. They say, basically, we don't accept someone as Satoshi unless they sign with the Genesis block key. Mm -hmm. Well, that key first, it might not exist. It it may the, the owner may have deleted it. It may have died with Dave Kleiman or or, or someone else who passed away. Um, we may never have that level of proof ever, and that may be fine as a standard of proof to say we're not going to accept you as Satoshi until that fine. But as thinking individuals, it's not binary. We don't say either you have completely proven something or I'm simply not going to think about it. That's not how we work as human beings. So if I I'm, would argue the situation is binary. It's either you sign it. Or you're not Satoshi. To I, don't, an I don't think that's sensical. That's not how that's not how most people think about the world. No? So, so if let's say there's overwhelming evidence presented that um, I'll use an example that Dave Kleiman was Satoshi Nakamoto and that he wiped his hard drive a day before he died in 2013. Let's say let's say there's overwhelming evidence. We have uh, how did he die by the way? Uh, so he had left the hospital uh, a few weeks earlier with complications. Um, I want to say it was a MRSA. It was it was like a chronic infection. MRSA? Damn. I think it was MRSA. It was a chronic infection. Like an antibacterial infection? I think so. Yeah. I, I would hate to be spreading misinformation. Or a bacterial he, infection. He, he was unstable uh, in 2013, chose to leave the hospital after being in and out of the hospital for a long time, and then died in his home a few weeks later. Mm -hmm. And I think it was from an infection, I think, um, or something infection-related. Maybe, maybe it was like, em uh, like emphysema or something. Um, but let's say there was overwhelming evidence that it was him, but he passed away. Maybe his hard drive is encrypted in the hands of his brother, or maybe it was wiped. You know, we can say, well, we're not going to accept that he was Satoshi. We're not going to assume that he was Satoshi. We're not going to call him Satoshi. That's fine. But we can't ignore evidence. Like, like I, as a thinking individual, I'm not going to, like, 
cover my eyes and ears with my hands and say, la, 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 no sign of Genesis key. I'm, I'm going to ignore all of the evidence in front of me that Dave Kleiman was Satoshi. Mm-hmm. Right. I can I can say like I'll, I'll say it's not certain. It's not proven. We don't know he was. But um, so I say all that not to say that Dave Kleiman was Satoshi. I don't know. Um, th- there's at least some evidence pointing in that direction. And there's yeah. very little ev- like it, to me, there are no other credible candidates that I've heard of. So if it's not him, it's likely someone whose name has not been put forward. So mm-hmm. like a, a friend of mine um, who's who's very tight with the core community, her belief is that it's someone else who was on the cypherpunk list, that early, early list that uh, the original white paper was published to, which had um, a small number of people, but large enough, and some of them were anonymous. And there's some people that have never really been tracked down, that have yeah. never really been dived. So it may be someone whose name, like all the other names that people put forward, I'm pretty confident are not Satoshi. Dave Kleiman is kind of the only guy left who in my mind could be. But there's dozens of others who are potential candidates that no one's ever really looked into. So mm-hmm. long story short, I don't know who Satoshi is. But um, but there's some chance that this, the Satoshi myth faces a major battle over the next year due to this lawsuit. Very interesting. Wow. And... <sighs> And that that's going to test a lot of people's beliefs and what this is, because I think again, you're, you're you're watching me question what it is right now in my mind, like, because that's what makes sense to me is that like it you need to not know who Satoshi is to make this work in my mind. It's a much better story, right? I will say it's it's better when when so I thought I. I thought it was somewhat likely to be Dave um, a year and a half ago, and I found that very reassuring because he passed away in 2013. I mean, that's horrible mm-hmm. to say. I, I, I feel bad kind of being happy that anyone passed away. But um, it's certainly better for the Bitcoin community and better for the success of the cryptocurrency project for Satoshi to no longer be with us. Yeah. And again, I, I apologize to his family. That's a horrible thing to say. But, um, you know, and, and for, for the story, for the narrative, to, to, be, to be somewhat confident that Satoshi's not going to come back and weigh in on politics yeah is positive for the space i think hugely positive and that's i mean again falling back to narratives like you have like it's a it's a quasi immaculate conception where it just shows up out of nowhere and it's like you have this you can use it to your benefit and this is fucking me up right now i'm not gonna lie this is fucking me up thinking of dave Kleiman as satoshi but again, I'm not asserting that i don't no know. no you're not no we're, we're doing a thought experiment here like what if it were to come to be that is proven that he is Satoshi. How would we react? Would it destroy the project? That's a, that's a question we all have to ask ourselves. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think... The, the, the fact that Dave did pass away, um, I don't think it would be that bad of an outcome. The The riskier outcome, the, the one that people are much more scared of, or, or not even scared of, the people who are scared of it just reject it as a possibility, is that Craig Wright was in any way associated with the project. You can't deny it. I mean, you so can't it, confirm it or deny it at this point. Like, yeah, we don't know. And, and and Craig has a history of backdating documents, forging documents. Like, it's been proven that he's done that in previous he cases. Faked, he faked the private keys to Gavin, right? Or he faked right. some proof to Gavin. Right, in right. So it's very hard to know what's true, what's not. Um, what Like, we have legal documents. We don't know what's backdated, what's fake, what's real. Um, but if Dave was Satoshi then Craig very likely worked with him on the project. There's so many emails between the two of them that both Ira, Dave's brother, have produced and Craig have produced that mm-hmm. suggests that there was some level of collaboration between them on Bitcoin. And there may have been a third member, maybe even a fourth member. 
Um, but that's much scarier because Craig is very alive, very loud, <laughs> very political, and and that's a problem for for most people in the Bitcoin community. Yeah, Bitcoin specifically or the landscape in general. I think Bitcoin specifically. Yeah. So the the people who um, I think Bitcoin specifically, the the rest of the ecosystem would almost prefer for Bitcoin to lose to be get knocked off the mantle. Yeah. Because at the moment it is a bit Bitcoin and everything else. Like like mm-hmm. a question I was asked frequently was like, well, why do we need anything other than Bitcoin? Will anything dethrone? It, the the question it was almost binary. It was either Bitcoin's going to conquer the world or it's something else or or we can drop the maximum maximalist thesis, which is a bit of a false dichotomy, but it was a little bit like either Bitcoin can do everything or we have this universe of investable opportunities, um, which is a false dichotomy. But I mean, I think like most other assets, crypt- crypto as a whole doesn't care about this. Yeah. No, it's I mean, really a Bitcoin issue. It is very Bitcoin specific. And again, like I'm a full believer in the fucking narrative story. Like the narrative is important in my mind. Maybe not in others, but in my mind, it is important. It's going up, cleaning crew. That's how late we're here on a Monday night. The cleaning crew just checked in to make sure we're alive. Um, Ari, it's been very fucking insightful, especially this last part of the conversation. This is uh, this is a uh, a sort of path that a lot of people don't like to go down because it's uncomfortable. Like, what if what if your gods are not who you thought they were, or some shit like that. It's really interesting to me. Like when, when I, I have a lot of friends who are Bitcoin core developers and um, just part of the core community, and they hate this discussion. They hate <laughs> the idea. I'm not gonna lie; it was a little squirmy at first, but it's like, hey, if this shit's gonna be real, you have to fucking confront this shit. You know? There's a lot of god worship. So, so yeah. it's it's the way it's been framed. Like, like to me, it's it's like something I'll assert. It's really clear to me that Satoshi was more than one person. Just reading the writing. So. Like going from things like double space to single space writing, uh, the tone changes at points. It it really reads like at different points Satoshi was written by different people, and to me that's not at all a problem. That that seems very intuitive because for twenty years people were working on Bitcoin unsuccessfully. So Adam Back did Hashcash and Nick Zabo did Bitgold, and there were all these uh, into, you know brilliant brilliant men who and commu- and a community of cryptographers that were tackling the problem unsuccessfully. Um, to me, it's much more credible that a handful of people with different skill sets—you know, maybe a coder, a cryptographer, a block, an, an engineer—kind um, of a game theorist came together to solve the problem. And and the writing seems to support that. Um, but I, I, some of my friends in the Bitcoin kind of maximalist community are like, no, it was one super genius. It was one su- <laughs> Satoshi is a god. It was I one, don't believe that one superhuman who did this. And and don't you dare say otherwise. And that person is. Alive and well, and because they are a bit, you know, uh, a, a beneficent dictator, will never or, or 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 God will never spend their Bitcoin or transfer them. I find it easier to believe that Satoshi is like an AI or an alien over one single person. Like I find that easier to believe that it's something that bootstrapped itself. But I, I haven't articulated this in the podcast but if i were to guess who satoshi was i would guess it's a group of people not one individual and i would guess it's a group of people over an artificial intelligence or an alien i just like fucking not fucking with but like playing the thought experiment like hey what if it was an alien that's trying to distract us or trying to uh trying to inject uh, a technology needed to get to the next level 
it's a fun thought experiment to go through. But le- like there's practically, a lot, there was a lot of buggy code from that alien. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, Bitcoin was pretty. The code was pretty crappy. That's what that's what coders tell me. I'm not a coder, but yeah, no. Satoshi was terrible. Was a like terrible the- developer and an incredible game theorist, from what a lot of people will say. Yep, and, and it was built very much on the back of the work of other people, right? So Adam Back is um, referenced a couple times in the white paper because the, the Satoshi white paper was built on the back of Bitgold and Hashcash. Mm-hmm. And there was very little crypt- cryptographic innovation. So it borrowed proof-of-work mining. It borrowed, like, all the pieces and kind of just assembled them in a novel um, way, in a critical, novel way. So it was, I'm not trying to take anything away from it, but it wasn't, like, I, I look at the Satoshi white paper and I don't see, like, a god. I see someone who was probably an outsider or a team of outsiders that approached the problem with novel eyes and had certain critical innovations that built on the shoulders of giants. Mm-hmm. And I would agree. And Ari, we've been in this booth for a while. I'm sweating. I think my hair is uh, all frizzy now from how humid it is in this in this studio. I appreciate you coming out on a Monday night. This has been a very, 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 very insightful conversation. I've appreciated your insight. Thank you for sharing it uh, with our audience. Um, where can we find out more about you? Do you have before that? Do you have a closing statement or anything for the audience? Anybody? There? Keep in mind, our audience is people probably relatively new to this space. Oh man, that's a that, that's a tough question. We need a one line word of wisdom, Ari. We need it in the next five seconds. I'm gonna give you one word of wisdom. Uh, the Hebrew word gemishut, which means flexibility. Gemishut. 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 Flexibility. Flexibility. There you go. One word of wisdom. I would wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, Ari, where can we find more out? Uh, I'm where on Twitter c- at, R- at Ari David Paul. Ari David Paul. A-R-I-D-A-V-I-D-P-A-U-L. And I'm Ari Bent. And I'm drunk on a Monday night. And you can find <laughs> more about me on Twitter at Marty Bent. And that's about it. Peace and love. Peace and love. Woo. That was you. fun. Thank you for putting up with me. No, no, it was fun. Thank you. <laughs> it took a little while to loosen up.